Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Bratzky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jess Dickey. And today we are talking about a Slate Codex post, which we sometimes do on here because these posts are always very interesting. And we don't have a David with us this episode. Darn it, no David. <laughs> if your name is David and you want to be on this podcast... My dad's name is David. <laughs> Get him on the podcast. He's got a thick accent, though. He does have, yeah. He'd be hard to understand. Accents are great. Plus, I don't know, you know, if he'd have much to say about these sorts of things. If I mean, as long as we're on the topic, maybe he'd want to talk about lying about being a Jehovah's Witness for fifty years. (laughs) (laughs) That could be a thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that would actually be really interesting to hear about. Oh, I don't think he wants to talk about it. I brought it up with him once, and he was like, "Yeah." Yep, that's that's the thing that happened. <laughs> Let's keep going in this conversation. Great, thanks, Dad. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh well, so the post we're talking about now is uh, his review of the book, "The Secret of Our Success," which, to my disappointment, upon reading the first paragraph, isn't a like strategy for how to win at life. N- well, I mean, it's more kind just of? it's it's how humans are successful on Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So l- less of like a I can use this to my like immediate win. Right, that's you could go right. join a really cool culture. Yeah, I, w- there should be one of those around. I don't know what they'd call it, though. Like the... They might call them the Bayesian Rationalists or something. Yeah, that has a ring to it. Yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> I like that culture. Um, <laughs> the This is a really cool book. When I have this thing where every now and then friends of mine who are into like cool, smart rationalist stuff but aren't specifically rationalist or rationalist adjacent will uh, recommend things to me, right? And I'll b- go out and buy the thing, and then I'll like read a little bit into it and get distracted and put it aside. And then a few months later, I see Scott Alexander write a post on it, right? I'm like, damn it, I should have read it and wrote about it first, which I would never do anyway. But at least if I'd have read it, I'd know what's going on here, right? So this happened with Red Plenty. It's up there on my shelf in my room with my other unread books. Oh, I was never able to finish that one. Okay. What's Red Plenty? It's about the um, early communist success, sort of, in uh, Russia. They actually did a really good job of bringing a, you know, pre-industrial society right roaring into the industrial age hmm. by taking all the excess that uh that they produced and putting it right back into capital production can i make two quick side notes about communist russia sure all right so one there's a fun movie that came out a couple years ago called the death of stalin i've heard it's yeah really good it was amazing super dark and funny yeah i mean amazing is like i usually say that for, for like avengers movies this was if, you, if you've ever seen the the show veep it's it's exactly like that okay um except it's so like it's that level of humor yeah. but, it's but it's realistic stalin. and it's stalin and like yeah. there's there's a part near the beginning where uh like the, the he gets a call that he he's like a conductor for this gigantic orchestra mm-hmm. and he gets a call like hey uh you know Wait, stalin? St- no uh, stalin's guy oh no i'm sorry this oh, oh, this random okay. guy runs this orchestra okay. and he gets a call and it's like yeah stalin would like a recording of tonight's show and he's like oh shit oh okay and like it's like done they're wrapping up people are leaving so he runs out there and he's like everyone get back to your seats everyone you know i know you guys are just here mm-hmm. we're doing this again because yeah. he didn't record it because why would he yeah. so then they record so like it's and then it's late because they came by to pick it up at you know what the time the show is supposed to end mm-hmm. he's like well you know stalin will be hearing about why this was late so like there's a, there's like the the palpable horror of living there too but it's also truncated with a lot of funniness like how when he died like everyone was afraid to move his body you know so like that sort of stuff and well he he literally just randomly terrorized people so they i don't know for whatever reason just keep the fear of him around so they wouldn't bother him like if someone came to him with a request or something he'd often have them killed just because like don't fucking bug me or he reminds me of lord voldemort yeah um yeah 
and the other one was from a comic. He doesn't do a lot of stand up. He apparently does a lot of freestyle rap, whose name I can't remember. But I'll I'll, I'll put. <laughs> See, I'll, I thought you were still talking about Stalin for a second. <laughs> nope, talking about a comedian now. Okay. And he's a British guy. I think he's like 21. Um, I'll find the video of his like five minute stand up thing. But he does just like two line jokes, kind of like Dimitri Martin and stuff. And he's got one. Uh, and I wish I'd known this because uh, uh, like the icebreaker at my new job was like, what superpower would you choose? And so he's like. If when people ask me what my, what superpower would I choose, my answer is always Cold War Russia. Oh. <laughs> exactly, right? It takes a second, but yeah. that would have gotten me such a laugh. I would have made it in so good at that crowd. But I think what I chose, I described Contessa's path to victory from Worm. I said I'd want that, so... I don't, I don't think I would want any of the powers from Worm because all of them are these double-edged swords. Yeah, that's true, but... I mean, I guess being able to throw metal around or read minds would be a thing, but yeah. Anyway. I don't think I'd want... Well, I don't know. I'm not sure the powers themselves are double-edged swords. Most of them are just the way that people use them. But like the whole thing is, this is how people would really use these powers. Well, this is how, you know, optimizing processes that are concerned only about one thing would use those powers. I'm not sure all people would do that. In the context of Worm, it's the whole thing, but yeah, basically. Um, anyway. Which is why they're fun to read. Yeah. So we were talking about a Slate Star Codex post. Yes, we were. Sorry. So Sorry. Yeah, we did that with Red Plenty. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Seth Dickinson, who is an amazing author, and he's actually included in the um, Radfic Online Anthology. I've done one of his uh, shorts before on the other podcast. He recommended Secret to Our Success to me. He was like, this is like everything that's Im- important to know right now. And not everything, obviously, but you know, he was really excited about it. So I picked it up. I read a little bit got distracted and then this came out and i was like oh damn it so i read all of scott's thing and then i read a little more but anyways really good book uh good in 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 the inside porn sort of way where when you read it you're like oh my god i never knew and now i've realized and holy shit this my brain is blown now yeah and i've always been an evolutionary psych enthusiast mm-hmm. i think that's a good word for it like i'm for someone who's like interested in things but not like knowledgeable yeah 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 enthusiast that's I, I like it so this this is all that stuff so exactly yeah i have um an interesting relationship with it where it's like this is very interesting and i hate it oh that is i don't hate an the book i hate the like, concept behind it we should get deeper into it okay all right in that case we should jump on in let's do it all right the book is secret to our success and we should say who wrote it which uh, it was joseph henrik thank you um which is a book about uh well the, the quote that I pulled is Henrik wants to uh, Henrik wants to debunk or at least clarify a popular view where humans succeeded because of our raw intelligence. In this view, we are smart enough to invent neat tools and help us survive and adapt to unfamiliar environments. Against such theories, we cannot actually do this. <laughs> and then he provides a bunch of examples from the book of how uh, we cannot actually do this in... Did you want to? I saw you pulled that. Yeah, so his alternate hypothesis is obviously that... Uh... Our success is due to our ability to transmit culture down through generations. Um, his counterexample for the we succeeded through intelligence hypothesis. Uh, he pulls up a whole bunch of examples of Victorian-era explorers just absolutely failing to use their wits and tool-inventing skills to survive in hostile environments, which weren't really hostile. These are places where other human civilizations were actually thriving at the time. So even though these were explorers who had these huge advantages over our early hominid ancestors... And they mentioned they were highly educated. They were young men in the prime of their health. They were selected for their experience with wilderness craft and survival. 
He also points out that they were not weighed down by having to uh, support women, children, and old people at the same time. Yeah. And I think the women thing is kind of... Like, women help out with the survival thing, but children and old people can sometimes be a burden. Well, and in the context of 1700s or whatever, you know... Yeah, the women probably wouldn't have been helping as much because they weren't allowed to. Because it's hard to breathe in a corset. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In, like, a 90-pound petticoat. (laughs) Um, But anyway, these very seemingly, like, skilled and adept people usually just starved to death because they either failed to recognize any edible food or they failed to effectively hunt any edible animals or they failed to cook this food in ways that unlocked its nutrients. And these were all things that the indigenous populations had learned how to do through cultural evolution, according to Henrik. And in a lot of cases, they were in areas that were just full of natural abundance, lots of food, lots of plants. Like These are places like Alabama and the jungle, right? Like and the Arctic, which I would argue is not full of abundance, but no. they were still, uh, there was a culture living there. Yeah. Henrik makes that point, though, that like the Arctic, or I think it was Alexander that made the point, like this place is already hostile, but because of cultural knowledge, people figured out how to live there. Yeah. I want to, I can imagine Eliezer Yudkowsky saying cultural knowledge doesn't exist, like it, it, it doesn't exist in the kidneys. It exists <laughs> in the brain. It is part of intelligence. So mm-hmm. whatever, like we're talking about with intelligence, it's encompassed into this. It's not what people mean when like, uh, when we typically think of it, like, yes, our ability to think things through and make tools and stuff. But this is, if it's a thing that, like, quote, intelligent things do, it's 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 part of sm- the smartness that made us rise to power, right? Kind of. But it's, it's a hive mind smartness. It's not an individual person who's, like, the smartest man on Earth could not use his brains to figure these things out and even keep living, whereas opposed a hive collective of humans could. I know, I, was just, I just, I can imagine a little pedantry there, but right. yeah. I mean, it's still the humans that took over the world as opposed to the monkeys, because, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's kind of jumping ahead a bit, but uh, Henrik did actually point out in one of the chapters, or at least it was in one of the sections of Scott's review, that part of it was not in the brain, part of it was in the gut. Yes. But I guess we can try to stay Oop. in order. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I'm jumping around. Henrik describes how difficult it actually is to find and kill, for example, a seal in the Arctic or uh, to make well-crafted arrows from scratch. And Scott broke it down, too. I'm not going to do it. But uh, they're very complex, multi-step, and unintuitive practices. Scott uh, said, It's no surprise that stranded explorers couldn't figure all this out. It's much more surprising that the various native groups did. It's definitely something that you couldn't have figured out just by being like, I'm going to build an arrow. Like, I look at it and like, oh, grab a straight piece of of stick, sharpen the end and put something on the back to keep it flying, flying straight. And like, it sounds super intuitive, but the steps that they lay that that the author lays out is like 17 things long. It was first like find the most gnarled stick. Apparently there was this one type of stick that made the ideal arrow that you had to actually just straighten with your teeth. Yeah, like you heat it and straighten it with your teeth. Like, so it's way more involved than it sounds to me. I would, I would fail to make an arrow and fail to shoot my prey with it for sure. Well, I mean, I would make... like to think I could sharpen a stick though. So. <laughs> you could make a substandard arrow and it might get the job done, but on the other hand, it also might not. And oftentimes, survival is the difference between those small things. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, um, there's only so many arrows you can make before you run out of calories to do things with, and you still need some for the actual hunting, and that might not work so well if you don't have great arrows, and so on. Yeah. His explanation for how people figured out this like incredibly multi-step complex process was cultural evolution, which uh, they're, I guess it's based on the idea of biological evolution. I don't remember if this was covered in the, in the post or if it was in the book itself, but uh, the, the way he explained it was basically some families institute certain practices almost 
almost randomly in effect, much like evolution and random gen genetic mutations. But uh, those families whose practices end up being useful in some way that they might, they almost surely aren't sure why, uh, they will do better. They were, their children will be more healthy. They will have more calories. They will, in fact, even have more children because calories was very much tied to how many children you make back in the day. And how many survive. Exactly. And uh, other families would either die out or much more often see what that family is doing and then be like, hey, we should do that. And there was a cool example about like a tribe, uh, well, an area with a whole bunch of different tribes in it. And one tribe was really good at how they like were succeeding. And they, they were all uh, various pig farmers, I think. And all the other tribes were like, what are they doing right? Why, why aren't we having the success? So they decided to implement a lot of their policies. And one of them was like that in the morning you go and you sing to your pig for 10 minutes, which is, <laughs> I guess, what that other tribe did. And maybe that does something or maybe it doesn't. But it just kind of shows that there was just this bunch of things that tribe did. And the other tribe was like, well, okay, let's mm -hmm. take them and try them. Something here is working. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very much a cultural evolution where you don't know what's happening, but if it works, it works. I wonder how you settle on 10 minutes and not 8 or 12. But, oh, well, um, I don't think it was exactly. Oh, I know, but like yeah. I imagine somebody experimented. You know, like if they're, if they're watching people do it, they're wondering like maybe more singing means better pigs or something. Stop, Jeffrey. But, you're singing to the pigs too long. <laughs> right. Uh, but, <laughs> Go give them ulcers. I've heard people make arguments about like this is sort of like the... Um, this might be a Jordan Peterson-esque argument about like the utility of religion from a non-religious context. Yes. It's like some of the taboos around like eating certain things, yeah. you know, like pigs carry whatever that cool disease is that gives you lockjaw or something. Um, some back, I need to know what I'm talking about before okay. I can go further. I think it's, uh, I think it starts with a T. It doesn't matter, but it's not tetanus, right? No. Yes. Okay. Um, they can carry that bacteria that can cause lockjaw or something, uh, whatever it is. So like, oh, that's why then the Jews didn't eat it because they got sick. So now, and my main thing is like, you can do all that without believing that a bearded man in the sky made the earth or something. Right. Yeah. So as you know, all that goes, but it is sort of that example. Like these things become part of the culture mm -hmm. and when they're codified, whether through um, cultural selection rather than maybe the natural selection or through like someone saying God told us not to do this, then it becomes, you know, if it's successful and it sticks that way, then lather, rinse, repeat, and it's popular, right? That was a big theme of the book or the review of the book. And that's yeah. why I said earlier, I hate it. <laughs> there are also a lot of other cultures that did have pigs in them. Uh, at the same time, the Jews were around that didn't have math massive health issues. It could have very well been a sort of thing where they tried to introduce pigs like those other cultures had and they didn't have the cultural evolution to not pick up the trichinoma. So they're like, fuck this. God says no pigs, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two different strategies. Yeah. I guess the thing I do like about cultural evolution versus biological is you can't just be like, that individual has a good mutation. I'm just going to adopt it myself. Right. You just kind of are like stuck with the ones you're born with. Right. Yeah, that is nice. Like, because you can pick up tricks and culture, but you can't get taller or whatever, you know, so those sorts of things. Alrighty, so we just covered that part. Uh, should I go ahead and read, read this little thing that I pulled? Read the thing. Okay, uh, this is again pulled directly from Scott's post. Everything that separates us from the apes is part of an evolutionary package designed to help us maintain this kind of culture, exploit this kind of culture, or adjust to the new abilities that this kind of culture gave us. But it's not just, and uh, this was about, um, you know, what cultural evolution does. Uh, he speaks a little bit about how our guts have shortened significantly and how we just can't process food anymore that hasn't been cooked or something first. Uh, it'll make us sick. Uh, he then says, but it's not just about chopping things up or roasting them. Traditional foods 
traditional food processing techniques can get arbitrarily complicated. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. Nixtamalization? Nixtamalization of corn, necessary to prevent vitamin deficiencies, involves soaking the corn in a solution containing ground-up burnt seashells. The ancient Mexicans discovered this and lived off corn for f just fine for millennia. When the conquistadors took over, they ignored it and ate corn straight. For 400 years, Europeans and Americans ate unnixtamalized Tamalized? I don't know. Unthat-thinged corn. By official statistics, 3 million Americans came down with corn-related vitamin deficiencies during this time, and up to 100,000 died. <laughs> but, I, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I'd never heard of this before, um, and apparently the only reason we're now still able to eat corn is that we have a synthetic version of this process that is done to corn. They don't teach you that in school. Yay, GMOs. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's like, it blows my mind that at some point, somebody was like, this, you know, Maybe it'll taste better with, with some ground-up burnt seashells on it <laughs> right. and their family happens to not starve that winter or something, right? Yeah. Like, that to me, that that's like the really tight parallel with natural selection yeah. where it's like, let's throw this random thing in and see what happens. I don't know. I mean, did they try burning other random shit and throwing it on corn? And I would imagine. Oh, they must have, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, humans are always trying to do anything for flavor. <laughs> I, it was also pointed out, I think this one was in the book because I don't remember reading it in Scott's thing, that uh, people develop t tastes, tastes for spices when they're young and they're the spices that their culture uses and those spices are generally the ones that are best adapted to making the food not spoil in the climate that uh, their culture exists in. That was not in the review and that's really cool. Yeah. I was actually trying to look up um, what causes people to develop tastes for different things versus others because I know that... There's certain evolutionary reasons why we think that bitter things taste nasty and sweet things taste good, and that makes a lot of sense. But then I'm like, so why do people like fermented things? Yeah. And I was kind of just looking that up on my own, and I, it's because fermented things can are more resistant against bacteria and uh, good for, you know, your microbiome. Yeah, I never just developed the taste for capsaicin, so I really hate all spicy things. But, like, when people ask me why I don't like it, I, I tell them that I don't think my food should hurt me, and I stand by that. But there's people who, like love the flavor of it even though it is painful and you see them like turning red and sweating and sometimes crying but they're like mm, so delicious <laughs> i like the pain it's not even the flavor of it it's like you know when you drink i don't i don't know if there's other things that you like like bitterness like maybe lemonade has like a tang lemonade. to it okay or like whiskey or trying something to figure out what you like yeah whiskey yeah, I, okay I, I've, I've managed to i didn't like alcohol when i first had some as a kid i'm like this is gross but then, like, I got drunk as an adult. I'm like, this is wonderful. Yeah, so, like, there are things that, um, spicy foods, you, you can pick that up as a kid by watching adults and copying the adults around you. And mm -hmm. you get um, positive reinforcement from copying adults. And then with things like alcohol, obviously, you get, like, a little dopamine surge from the, like, other positive effects that it has. And eventually, you associate that with the flavor. That's so cool. Uh, the capsaicin is really good at keeping it keeping uh, molds and bacteria off the food yeah and, and, and you can anti-develop tastes by having negative associations with them like some people who get really bad stomach flu can't eat a kind of food that they used to like anymore when it made them sick right. oh yeah my dad doesn't drink whiskey for like the last 35 years because he got crazy just like alcohol poisoning from it at some right. point so yeah. um quick plug super relevant for the youtube channel hot ones Okay. If you guys have you are you are you are <laughs> oh, familiar? I, th no. I saw one of those. I think it was uh, with Weird Al, the one that I yeah, saw. Probably. Okay. Yeah, probably. So yeah, he has the the gimmick is he has celebrities on, and they eat increasingly ridiculously hot hot wings, and then he'll <laughs> grill them with random questions, and it's a fun little interview show. 
but try one with any celebrity you've heard of that's fun and then watch the one with alton brown the the tv chef from you know good eats and cutthroat kitchen mm-hmm. and hit first like people react differently because they get insanely hot people get sick people you know sweat they cry um alton just when it gets to the really hot ones he's just like you can't even taste this. This is just, this is just pain. Like this one sucks. <laughs> and it's, it's not like, then he'll get like to a hotter one. Even it's like, at least you can taste this one. I can get, I'm getting some of the flavor in that. Huh. So, uh, there's, there's something there to where you can enjoy as his, his thing is mainly like, I'm not going to eat it just for the pain, but as long as there's some flavor to it, but he also handed it really well. Like he, he uh, I'm not sure if he completely shaves his head or if he's just bald now, but he, he, he I don't think he sweated a bead the whole time. He was crushing yeah. it. So, wow. Maybe just rubbed a bunch of aluminum into his skin before he went on. The other trick for surviving hot foods apparently is uh, tequila or like super strong alcohol, but tequila is Alton's go-to. And what does it do? Uh, it, it helps uh, neutralize it in your mouth so it burns oh. less, but I don't think they were going to let him drink a bottle of tequila on the show. So he had a cup of half and half. Yeah, milk is pretty good with that. The fats, I hear. Yeah, but I mean, so he went he went over he went overloaded right, right. with it and got half and half, right? Yeah. So um, yeah. Even better. Anyway, hot stuff. Yeah. Um, we're getting close to the food part, which is, uh, like the plant part related to that. So I'm we're almost there. Okay. Um, yeah. Then I've got an anecdote. All right. The next part was about how culture gets passed down. So obviously, you know, you don't just inherit it the way you do with genes. Scott pulled out this graph from the book that showed how infant humans compared to apes on various IQ types tests. So the apes and the babies scored almost exactly the same on a bunch of other measures, except in social learning, or like the ability to learn uh, from another human, or in the case of an ape from another ape, where human babies quote-unquote wipe the floor with the apes. Can I interject real quick? Have you guys seen the video of the ape IQ test where the chimpanzee has to hit the numbers in order on a screen after they are flashed really briefly on a screen? I haven't, but I've heard that chimpanzees are better at certain kinds of math than humans. Uh, I don't know if it was math or just memorization. Like, they knew the numbers 1 through 14, I think, what order they come in anyway. I, I don't know if they actually knew what they were supposed to represent. But they knew the shapes and the order they are supposed to be in. Really quickly, like, split second, it was flash on the screen and then disappear, and the numbers just randomly over the screen. And the chimpanzee would go and touch on the screen in order exactly when each were, where each one was. Like, there's no fucking way I could have done that. I don't hmm. know any human who could have done that just with a split second flash on the screen and the chimpanzees got it 100% of the time. I've seen something like that. I can't remember if it was the same thing or not. That's that's really interesting. Like the real fast memorization of a visual thing was astounding. And I didn't get a chance to dig into that chart because I was reading this on my phone on the train, but like it said it was not it was it was toddlers and that surprised me because I didn't know that toddlers had any sort of culture, but I also don't know what the age range is for toddlers. Yeah, oh, well, either. this was even talking about babies. I mean, like, we learn a ton from age zero to whatever age they're going to cut it off for toddlers. It's just a, you don't often see very much of the output of that learning. Yeah, pretty hmm. much the first thing babies do is start imitating the, the humans yeah, around it, them. In the womb, apparently. They're still listening. They were pruning phonemes from the uh, native language. Neat. Yeah, so that surprised me. We were talking about trying to document surprises earlier, so I made a note of that. Yeah. I, I guess I just wouldn't have figured that they're even aware. I mean, I guess I, now on reflection, they're obviously aware of each other, but I, I guess I just didn't notice. I didn't Who, consider the apes or the babies. Babies, okay. I mean, I just didn't think that they could look around and like see what another baby is doing and think about what they should do themselves. I don't think they mimic other babies so much. They mimic the adults around them. Um, they they mimic each other too. Do like it's, it's easier to teach a kid to swim if another kid teaches them. Because um, they even, I think, talked about that in the book. You learn from people who are the most similar to you. Yes, they did say that. Anyway, that was interesting. Yeah. 
Scott brought up a couple of examples of about how infants are obsessed with learning things, which we're kind of just talking about. They even mentioned humans seem to have these built-in slots in their brain that they're compelled to fill with, specifically language, animals, gender roles, and which plants are edible. The language thing I've known about for a long time, I think it has been known for a long time, that humans are most susceptible to learning languages in the early years of life. And if you try to learn one after that period, it's always harder. And uh, often, especially once you get out of your teens, the accent will be impossible to get rid of unless you have like some extreme coaching and practice at it. Yeah. But sometimes just literally impossible to get rid of the accent no matter what. And I, I mean, you got to think too, learning to talk is, hard, is even harder than like as an additional problem on top of learning a language, right? Yeah. Like how to make different sounds when you move your mouth. Like that's not something that we're aware of and we're talking right now, right? Right. Um, so they've got to figure all that stuff out too on top of learning how to actually make the sounds they want to make. I was really, I mean, I am really curious about the accent thing though, because uh, apparently I could speak Polish early in my life with uh, no accent, just like fluent Polish. And when I see videotape of me as a kid talking, oh my God. It's a, I have a bad Polish accent and I'm really annoying and I'm not surprised other kids didn't want to hang out with me. But uh, now when, when I speak Polish with my parents, they say, you speak with a heavy American accent. And, you know, it's just, it's so weird that someone who can be taken out of their home country, like Schwarzenegger perhaps, right? Lived his <laughs> entire life here since the 20s in America, probably doesn't speak his native language all that much. And yet he has this thick accent, which will never go away. He probably couldn't even, I don't think he could even fake an American accent. With a lot of coaching, you probably can. You see a lot of um, British actors who have perfect American accents and vice versa. Yeah. 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 But that, I, I, I meant Schwarzenegger in particular. I mean, if maybe he just never tried because his accent's part of his brand. But um, there was an interesting thing there about plants, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense, you know, observing what your parents, if you're a toddler, are eating and stuff. But apparently babies have a huge aversion to plants. And there was this long snippet in there about um, like putting babies in a room with like two unusual, two plants they'd never seen. In this case, it was like parsley and basil and like two objects they'd never seen, like a wooden spoon and a lamp. And they would like always go for the spoon and lamp, even though in the intestinal environment, those aren't things they saw, but they have an aversion to plants. And so I sent this long wall of text to my sister, whose uh, baby just turned one a couple months ago. Yeah. And she said... Uh, um scrolling she says that's interesting it explains her first reaction with basil screams and tears <laughs> wow. but she'll eat it now um and i was like hey that's so cool not cool that she was crying but now cool that we have an evolutionary psych context for it right and she's like yeah, yeah. exactly apparently they wouldn't even uh it, they, they looked to the adults to see which ones they would touch and then which ones they would eat and i think they did the experiment where they would pick the f- they would pick some fruit and then they would put it behind their ear versus eating it so those babies would touch the fruit and i think they wouldn't eat it unless the person had clearly just put it in their mouth that's so so cool i I think like somebody else in the comments was questioning whether that's real though and they're like my kid will shove anything in its mouth so yeah i do think scott mentioned later also in the comments that he asked the uh, person with a two-year-old in their house and they said yeah our two-year-old puts everything in its mouth no matter what so don't know maybe it's only when you're younger maybe it's not quite as solid maybe if they grow up with a dog (laughs) <laughs> see the dog eating everything well i mean because the dog also manipulates everything with its mouth oh uh, yeah, right yeah. so like the mouth like its mouth is its hand how old is your uh your your sister's kid 14 months okay i have my sister has a kid now too who's like five months i should ask her the same thing Man, or better, better yet just bring a plant next time you see the baby and see if it freaks <laughs> out <a> idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say like one of my sisters needs to have kids i gotta do some experiments on them do, do some science <laughs> 
Uh, I pulled another quote out of Scott's post here. In the cultural intelligence hypothesis, humans live in obligate symbiosis with a culture. A brain without an associated culture is incomplete and not very useful. So the infant brain is adapted to seek out the important aspects of its local culture almost from birth and fill them in through the appropriate slots in order to become whole. Yeah, and that was like a kind of in reference to these four slots. One of them was gender roles, and Scott pointed out that gender roles vary across cultures. So not necessarily always like blue equals boy and pink equals girl. Apparently that changed at some point. Oh yeah, it used to be the other way around. The kind of dress changed, you know. But it still kind of fits with that you learn from those that you're most similar to. Yeah. So if other little boys are playing... could be whatever, but you got to figure out what they are. Exactly. Although I heard that... um, this like even with chimpanzees the female uh infants are much more likely to go for toys that are like of a uh, baby looking toys like uh you know, dolls and things like that whereas boys were f- uh, far more likely to go for objects sticks balls that sort of thing yeah that's that kind of thing has been proven over and over again the there's a uh, obviously there's overlap it's a big venn diagram but young female assigned people do go for like the nurturing type toys and young male assigned people will go for more like uh, measurement type toys. Uh, Scott, actually, I thought this was funny. Uh, said maybe the reason that little boys like trucks so much is that like that's filling in the slot for animals because trucks are the only megafauna that kids are going to see nowadays. Oh, I liked that. Like that point too. I think um, you know it. This is me now, armchair uh, evolutionary psychologizing. So, uh, but I mean, if you especially in the context of like doing these studies in the seventies, you know, the, the dad's out winning bread and the mom's home taking care of stuff. So the, the babies will internalize, Oh, you know, women caregiver. I want, you know, and if you're, if you're a little girl, I want to play with dolls then. Cause that's what the people like me that I've observed do. Um, but I mean, I'm, and I, maybe I'm, I'm stretching that whole learning from things that you learning from people that you're similar to. Right. Yeah. That seems to be a bit more innate too, though. Like they have done the, let's raise a child in a genderless environment and they still have those preferences. Interesting. Except for um, some kids like me. Right. But then again, I'm trans now, so. I do remember that the boys, uh, uh, or at least one of the boys raised genderless, uh, didn't have any problem using like a baby stroller, uh, but would use it more for moving things around rather than like as a baby stroller, you know? But he didn't have any of the association of like, oh, that's a girly thing. I can't touch it. And there was like the stories of the little girls that would like wrap up the train in a blanket and be like, (laughs) my baby train is sleeping now. Yeah. Hmm. I do like the idea of of cars and trucks as megafauna though. Me too. Yeah. Makes you feel, makes me slightly more able to understand people who'd like name their cars and feel really attached to them. Uh, I named all my cars. Oh. I, I'm on my fifth car and I haven't named any of I've them never yet. named a car either yeah. and I don't care about my car I'm like if it gets wrecked and I get the payout that's fine <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah the next part of the book is about post-childhood learning and it's mostly focused on prestige which uh, we talked about a little bit already and it's that whole idea that it's hard to figure out how skilled somebody is just from judging one technique against another, if you're an outsider or a noob, someone who's trying to learn this skill and you're just watching, you have no idea what components of that skill contribute to how effective it is. Um, Scott was talking about a basketball player, and I forget what the five things that he had were, but he said, if you were watching this basketball player's like pregame routine, you have no idea which of these things matters. Was it like 
how many times he practiced layups or was it how he tied his shoes or was it his pregame prayer or was it the fact that he ate carrots? So we have no idea how to know which ones are good. So instead, we seem to have developed this mental shortcut where we equate prestige with skill. And then, of course, unfortunately, this has led to celebrities in modern culture having more influence than maybe arguably they should. <laughs> the prestige thing is really cool and reminded me of an old After Hours video that I saw where they were basically deconstructing like the turtles and other common archetypes, right? And pointed out that everyone kind of hates Leonardo and everyone kind of hates Cyclops and the X-Men. And like whoever the leader role in, in these made-up groups is, people always tend to kind of hate them. And really the main reason for that is because they're not a natural leader. They're like someone that someone in authority like Professor X or Splinter pointed to and said, this is your leader now, take his orders. And so all the audience kind of hates that. Whereas in real life, the real leaders are usually people who are really fucking good at something. Like it would be the best ninja that just kind of becomes the leader because everyone else wants to be like him. It would be the most capable X-Men that would kind of become the leader because everyone is like, yeah, let's do what he's doing. Or at least the most charismatic. Or that, yeah. I mean, like arguably somebody who's good at managing people might be better at being the leader than the best ninja. Yes. Yeah, I mean, like everyone likes Splinter and Professor X. Mm -hmm. But they're not the de facto leaders of, like, the combat squad, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. But both Splinter and Professor X are good at what they do. Um, so things that I pulled out is also from, from this section. Hunter-gatherers really want to learn the essentials of their hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and learning it is really hard. Their heuristics are, one, learn from people who are good at the things... Uh, if you haven't already read about the difference between dominance and prestige hierarchies, check out Kevin Simler's blog post on the topic, which, by the way, I would also really recommend. I wanted to do a show about this at some point, and I've been wanting that for years, and maybe someday we'll get to it. But yeah, it's really good. I think it's it's either Melting Asphalt or Meaningless. I always get those two blogs mixed up. But uh, he has a great, um, great post about how humans are very much a sort of hive mind creature, and the way, the reason this works is because prestige and admiration are how we coordinate ourselves and um yeah it's a great post and hansen talks a lot about prestige in all of his stuff but mm -hmm. most recently in the elephant in the brain i mean the i think it's it's you don't even have to understand like why they're prestigious to i guess admire them or like want like if you're wanting to get into it to like mimic that um you just see that everyone else appreciates it right and it's i, I think it's just one of those i think scott called it prestige cascades or like the concern being that somebody just becomes famous by being famous right or for right. being famous yeah but yeah it says people will fear and obey authority figures like kings and chieftains but they give it div a but they give a different kind of respect prestige to people who seem good at two is learn from people who are like you if you are a man it is probably a bad idea to learn fashion by observing women if you are a servant, it is probably a bad idea to learn the rules of etiquette by observing how the king behaves. And vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> people are naturally inclined to learn from people more similar to themselves. Heinrich ties this into various studies showing that black students learn better from a black teacher, female students from a female teacher, etc. And three, learn from old people. Old people have already learned the local culture and can teach it to others. Heinrich asks us to throw out any personal experience we have of elders. We live in a rapidly changing world where an old person is probably behind the times. But for most of history, change happened glacially slowly, and old people would have spent their entire lives accumulating relevant knowledge. Imagine a Silicon Valley programmer stumped by a particularly tough bug in his code calling up his grandfather, and also the note that sometimes important events only happen once in a generation. And 
Stephen, you as a programmer um, said once that you knew a guy who was like the guy who knew everything and like had mad prestige and everyone went to him and you wanted to be like someday just be like half as cool as he is, right? He's 26. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's he's exceptional and that, that gives him kind of bonus prestige, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, on my last team, at my last job, uh, the other senior that I worked with, he was in his 60s and he was that guy. He'd been doing this since... They were, you know, program, so programming cards. with punch cards. Exactly. I mean, he talked about that. Yeah. So he, he knew all the ins and outs down to the, you know, top and bottom of, of what he was doing with everything. So that was another kind of, like, getting getting a lesson from him was also really just go to gratifying. Him and he knows the shit, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's always the impression, I imagine, you know, just like asking an elder, you know, how, why am I crafting my arrows with the right-winged feathers of a bird rather than the left-winged feathers? And they could give you an answer but you got the impression that they knew a lot more than just what they told you because they probably did. And that's, that was my experience too, talking with really like senior devs who'd been, the, been in this forever. So the, the, the 26 year old guy is just a savant. I mean, so he, he knew stuff that he'd been able to pick up in his time doing this, but he, it, it wasn't the same kind of seniority experience. Different kinds of prestige. Totally. Yeah. The, uh, important events only happening once a generation. Um, the example that they used in the book was elephants and elephants live a very long time, and they're one of the species, like us, uh, long-lived mammals who do keep elders around uh, post-menopause. Uh, and for pretty good reason, they talked about a couple of instances where there were these droughts. And because of poaching, a lot of these elder elephants don't exist anymore, but the elephant tribes that had a matriarch were able to find the last resort water holes while the others weren't. Because the, the older ones had, you know, found water in hard times before yeah. they remembered the the really hard to get to water holes that you normally don't get to that they were brought to once when they were a kid when there was a horrible drought they also had better survival rates um because they knew which lions were the most dangerous i guess some other things too so keeping your elders around apparently does directly affect the success of the younger generations all right i guess i will Try to respect my elders a little more. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently our elders are uh, behind the times. That's true. Well, so you, you won't consult them about your, you know, 21st century problems. But, but I mean, like a life issue. Like, you know, Grandma, what happened? You know, did you ever have a situation like this? Like, oh, yeah, I had 10. Yeah. And it's your first time having this, and they can talk to you all about it and give I you mean, all the wisdom they had from that. So. Grandma might be able to remember what happened the last time a populist, you know, blowhole was elected. Yeah. Not sorry, I shouldn't bring it back there. Why? Why did I do that? Let's go forward. Because everything's been totally foobar lately, and yeah. we can't even go there. And we know this shit's happened in the past. <sighs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Onward. Yeah. So, at the end of the essay, Scott talks about examples of cultural evolution that he found the most interesting in the book, which uh, I think we talked a little bit about these, but they were manioc, uh, divination, and shark tab- taboos. Uh, manioc, I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced, but it's a type of tuber that is only edible if you use this complex processing technique to get rid of the cyanide, which uh, I believe you had to chop it and then soak it and then boil it. And Since then let it soak for like three days, right? Something like that. But not four or five, because if it soaked too long, so, I don't know, so, something happened. It was like exactly three days, and if you pull it out too early, it would still have some cyanide, and if you pull it out too late... There's probably steps that were missing there too. I'm sure it's very precise yeah so and then like since i'm so I, glad i can just buy food at the supermarket oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guaranteed to not have too much cyanide yeah just the right amount 
Uh, since cyanide poisoning would take a while to become evident, uh, the only reason that people would keep using the more complex technique is tradition. And by a while, it was like decades before you started noticing the bad effects. It would be a good 20, 25 years before it started really affecting you. So this is really like modest doses of cyanide. Trace amounts, yeah. yeah but not... enough that it builds up over time. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, then there's like divination. Um, apparently, acts as a crude type of randomization tool. Uh, which would be useful in war when you're deciding whether to attack your enemy's left or right flank or for deciding where to hunt or where to plant your crops. These are all um, techniques that require real randomization. And uh, Scott went on about how humans are very, very bad randomizers yeah. to the point where somebody could write a very easy AI program that could, like, with 76% accuracy or something like that, predict whether you're going to click one side or the other. Uh, when or you're what, trying to be random. Or I forget what it was, yeah, or what number you were going to pick. Yeah. It, it could out-predict you. It was uh, also, they went into some examples of why these sorts of things would be useful. Like, it doesn't, it's not intuitive to me why it would be useful to randomize where you're hunting or where you're going to plant crops. But it turns out that going back to the same place that you had a great catch last time is actually probably counterproductive because the animals also remember where they were killed last time or, well, where their family members and kin were killed last time. And so they start staying away from those places. And you killed a lot of the ones that were there that too yeah yeah and uh there, there was something similar with the the planting that if you overplant one area you start pulling the nutrients out of the soil and so just having a truly randomized process actually is a little bit uh beneficial more than a little bit beneficial it's actually beneficial i read about this at one point a long time ago about precise order of crop rotation to keep your soil good and it there there is you, you can keep using i'm sure you have to add whatever fertilizers and stuff but you can if you rotate crops not randomly, but in the right kind of order, different kinds, I don't remember the specifics, um, the the soil stayed good for longer. And that's definitely this kind of like trial and error thing. It's like, well, we had a great soybean harvest last year. Let's do that again. It's like, no, no, no. Because it's written on this stone tablet that you guys can't look at or because grandma said so, we're doing it this way. Apparently it was weird birds. Oh, for the Romans, it was weird. Well, I, th I think it was for planting too. Okay. If you see a um, fortuitous bird doing a particular thing in this particular spot <laughs> there was a whole complex process behind what the bird was doing but like that's generating random numbers was not the reason why the users of these techniques thought that it worked right they thought that we burn this bone and it creates these cracks and that creates a map that will guide us to the hunting grounds and the spirits are helping yeah they didn't know why magic. it worked yeah, yeah but they knew it did work i also liked uh, someone in the best of comments uh, later on pointed out that uh, divination processes that are long and complex and difficult are much better than simple, easy ones because then you can't just redo them until you get the result you would like. <laughs> and, uh, and making it be long and complex is like, uh, once you get to the end, you're like, fine, we'll fucking take this result. Less room for humans to unrandomize it. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, if you're just flipping a coin or dropping a stick to see which way it points, you can be like, I'm going to try again. <laughs> yeah, that's but, two out of three. But, but if, you, exactly. <laughs> but if, you're, if you've got this hard to find, you know, substance then you destroy it in the process of your divination then it's like well we got to just do that now we don't have all the time and effort to go do this all over again there was also a cool i i didn't i don't i didn't pull it which i kind of regret now but there was a uh, cool anecdote about how in the 50s when or maybe it was the 70s when computing got uh much cheaper uh people started redoing calculations uh especially on data from from experiments to get results they liked better so uh that kind of had a negative impact the the introduction of the computer into the science process at least for a while womp <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotta have some kind of divination process <laughs> right. 
That's, that's what I'll say next time I write bugs. That's control trials are. <laughs> you know, there's 20,000 people across seven years. We just can't afford to do this twice. I'll explain the value of a good divination process next time. Like, my stuff only works, like, one out of 20 times. Or why, why, why it fails <laughs> one out of 20 times. Like, you guys have no idea how valuable this is to cultural evolution. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last uh, tradition was Fijian women who refuse to eat shark when they're pregnant. And when asked why, they said, because their babies will be born with shark skin. Uh, but the actual reason is more likely that shark meat causes birth defects. Which sounds like a better reason, because being born with shark skin sounds kind of cool. <laughs> I know, right? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? I imagine they're harder to cut and pierce than I mean, squishy human skin. this is probably skin. in a society where being like a mutant is considered bad. Yeah, being a shark person probably <laughs> wouldn't have been good for you. Now people aren't sure you have souls anymore, and yeah. <laughs> Might be hard to give you a hug, too. No. Be all scratchy. Uh, yeah, so each of these cultures accidentally discovered a true fact about the universe. But they have no idea why it's true. Um, so they developed a tradition around it and were motivated to stick to that traditional way of doing things, even if the traditional explanation actually makes no sense. Uh, and other methods might seem faster and easier and more tempting to try. Instead of cutting up the manioc and then soaking it for three days and grinding it and boiling it, it's like, well... The process was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> why, just, why don't I just do this faster thing? It literally sounds like a ridiculous magic ritual over a number of days for no reason at all. Yeah, and uh, they pointed out, or I guess it was probably Scott making this uh, point, not the original author, but if some person was like, hey, I want to spend more time with my kids, uh, I'm going to cook this stuff faster, and you know, maybe they ate it themselves, and they're like, hey, it's fine, because it would take, you know, maybe 20, 30 years for the cyanide poisoning to really start building up to where uh, you start getting sick and you can't even point to the manioc necessarily right. as why, why are these people getting sick um, could be a number of things. So the fact that they developed this tradition around it kind of fail-safed the correct technique. Um, Scott says that this might explain why we as a species tend to be averse to logic and reason, doing what seemed like quote-unquote logical and reasonable in the ancestral environment could get you and your whole tribe killed. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about the food preparation. I think this was on one of the like first series of Planet Earth documentary series. Um, it was capu these capuchin monkeys. They would get these nuts and then they would set them out in the sun for like a day or two. Hmm. And then they would smash them with rocks and then they were good to eat after that. Maybe it was because they were easier to smash after a couple of days of drying or, so uh, or something. But there was that was some little cultural evolution. Hmm. Plus capuch capuchin monkeys are among my favorite. They're like nine pounds. They're really cute. They got their little hands and the little close-up video of them using rocks. Like, oh, they're the ones that have like the manes, right? Those are, they, they have some. There's, I, I think we're thinking of different ones. Cause, maybe. But I think I'm thinking of a tamarind. I think maybe, yeah. I, I don't know a lot about monkeys, but, and someone, these aren't monkeys. Someone's going to correct me, whatever. These little primates, but the little video, like he's hefting what's like, you know, about the size of like a coffee cup. It looks like he's heaving this huge boulder <laughs> and then throwing it down onto the onto the thing, and they they sit there and try it over and over until they hit the thing. But it it was in addition to being informative and related to this article, also super cute. So cool. I I get your hatred, and I kind of feel it too. On the other hand, I also have this sort of morbid fascination, which I hear a lot of people get like with uh, thinking about zombie apocalypses. They're like, objectively, I know it would be horrible. I would probably die, and even if I didn't die. I'd live a few years in a horrible wasteland where everyone I love dies and then I die of like a bad infection or something. But man, a zombie apocalypse would be so fun to be in, right? Zombie land made it, made it look like a lot of fun. Right, right. <laughs> and I, I know a lot of people who have that kind of fantasy and I kind of feel the same way about 
what we just read about human civilization. Uh, Scott says, uh, says it this way. One of the most important parts of any culture, more important than the techniques for hunting seals, more important than the techniques for processing tubers, is techniques to make sure nobody ever questions tradition. Humans evolved to, to transmit culture with high fidelity. And one of the biggest threats to transmitting culture with high fidelity was reason, with a capital R. Our ancestors lived in epistemic hell, where they had to constantly rely on causally opaque processes with justifications that couldn't possibly be true, and if they ever questioned them, they might die. Historically, reason has been the villain of the human narrative. Which, holy shit, guys. That's fucked up. And it makes so much sense, too, why there's so many stories about... Um, there's so many early civilizations that have this kind of myth where a woman comes out of the forest and, she, and she's like, I will bring you great prosperity, but you just can't eat a squirrel. And then, of course, the dumbass always, like, eats a squirrel after, you know, however many years of following the instructions and his kingdom prospers. And then, like, something horrible happens. And there's, like, the same kind of myth just over and over. This structure of do not question, you know, strange women throwing swords at you from lakes. Or <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the quote was, but, it's, like... I mean, it's even common to the very... to today. Like, a lot of sci-fi is uh, cautionary tales, right? Uh, I mean, I guess 1984 is the first one that jumps to mind, but there's a lot of, to the point where I, one of my favorite comics is Caveman Sci-Fi, where uh, there's this caveman who has invented fire, and he's like, look, me make fire! And the other caveman goes, no, you go too far, you am play God! He says, no, now my food better! And then the next panel is the entire world caught fire, and it's the uh, caveman <laughs> saying, me am play God! <laughs> <laughs> And one is the, <laughs> another one with like a, sh uh, a sharp rock. All the cavemen have like dull rocks on the ends of their uh, axes. And this one was like, look, me make sharper rock. And the other one goes, says, you go too far. You am play God. <laughs> he goes, no, me hunt better now. And then he takes the rock and hits the ground and the entire earth breaks open. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, flat little island of land down in space that's now broken in half. And he goes, me am go too far. <laughs> <laughs> it's but there's a lot of sci-fi like that you know like don't play around with genes like gattaca because you'll make terrible things happen and don't implement this other technology because then all of society will crumble that strikes me as distinctly different than like not doing things for known for known impossible but reasons these aren't known reasons as the thing this was an old person saying this bird is lucky right yeah exactly but like why shouldn't you tamper with genes well because we're pretty sure we're not sure of you know all the things that might happen you know the cascading effects from that and like, there's there's a reasonable process behind that, right? It's not because some witch told us not to. But the science fiction stories generally tell you, show you, you know, future scenarios that are kind of ridiculous, like humanoid robots walking around shooting people, and when they want to infiltrate them, they put on hyper-realistic human skin, you know? And yeah, okay, the the lesson that AI can't be trusted is actually a very good one, but the scenario that they play out is kind of ridiculous and hokey. And yet that is the sci-fi that is forever with us. Yeah, like there's a lot of this taboo against playing God in general, which playing God can be doing anything new. Yeah. And specifically, I guess there's probably certain areas that are especially bad to tamper with, like uh, anything that involves creating life or messing with life. Cloning, people were all about, no, cloning is going to create super sheep or... Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, there's there's movies where all that stuff happens. But I guess I'm just thinking, like... There was horrible things about both organ transplantation and in vitro fertilization for a while. Like, the Catholic Church literally wasn't sure if these people would have souls <laughs> if you put in someone else's liver into your body. 
like what happens then Does... you have like 10 percent of somebody else's lo- like soul yeah, yeah inside you now it was a huge thing until it actually like was done and someone's life was saved and people were like yeah fuck that i, I would like a new liver and some people still don't accept organ transplants jehovah's witnesses still don't accept blood so we're, we're talking about the parables of like science fiction not like the lessons that right I mean, but I mean, like the ancient parables of don't eat shark meat or your children will have shark skin is the same kind of ridiculous story that yet somehow, you know, was for a good reason. Yeah, well, what about people that don't eat GMOs because it's Franken food? Right. Yeah. But but they're doing it that 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 that's that's kind of the example I'm thinking of. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. And so like. But you can kind of see where they're coming from when all of cultural evolution has been pushing people to not try new things because sticking to old things is what made you not die. I guess I'm, I'm like I feel I'm slightly lucky. more sympathetic towards those people. It's it's fun in the sense of understand. It's to me this is I get like kind of the like oh man this sucks oh, factor God, that you yeah. guys have, but it's for me it's more just like oh cool I found where this bug lives and now now we know how to address it. Is and, it saying it's not a bug though? Well, it it's a bug insofar as if. Because now we know how to make corn properly or something. Now we've now we fixed the bug. We don't have to do it the hard, weird way with, you know, burnt seashells. Steven, did you go to a university? I went to, I got a psychology degree. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, I didn't. Um, I feel that college, especially nowadays, is wasteful and stupid. It wastes people's lives. It wastes a ton of money, which is not necessarily needed. That's still true. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, that's I more true than ever. <laughs> all right. All right. I, I kind of consider it like the ivory tower um, magical thing, where if you go to this special magical tower, now you become special if you spend four years of your life there and people want to hire you more. Um, th- there's a whole cool post, which I'll link. But uh, the thing is, as uh, Scott Alexander pointed out, most most people in the rationalist sphere now kind of think of university as sort of like this passe old institution which has outlived its usefulness. Uh, but what if that's one of those things that works in ways we don't entirely understand that makes our entire culture possible? And sure, it's extremely expensive, but maybe it's a good reason, maybe it's a good thing we haven't gotten rid of it because all of a sudden, 30 years from now, we all develop not having college poisoning and die, you know? <laughs> I wonder, like, so the... I, I, again, I'm thinking this from like a Hansonian lens where like the point of going to college now is that you can get credentialed and put that on your resume and people will be like, oh, they can tolerate going to school. They can tolerate sitting in a cubicle for eight hours a day. Right. Um, but the, the solution to that now, like, so again, I got a useless degree that I never used and instead went to a boot camp trade school and now do that. So like the, I, it could be that there's some secret benefit of, you know. Exactly. That's the horror part. Yeah. We hate the two-party system. What if there's some secret benefit? I mean, like, one that is a little bit more near to my heart is, what about uh, monogamy? Uh, yeah. What about other, like, traditions that I hate? Yeah, or what about sexism? Oh, God. But in in that way lies madness, right? If if we start saying, no, we can't change these things because they might be secretly useful. Yeah. How can we possibly better ourselves? That's literally where the hatred for this post comes from. We might be living in a horror world where everything we're doing to better the world is secretly making it deadly. Well, then that's part of cultural evolution and we'll figure it out. Like, (laughs) you know, if if tribes, you know, groups of people starved to death, but humanity didn't, right? Yeah, so, but see, that, I'm not so big on the starving to death part. Yeah. Like, communist Russia had this great idea, and it worked for a few decades when they rocketed them into the industrial age, but uh, it ended up with millions of people starving to death. But so, so let's, Venezuela let's, right now is, like, 
what i just i can't even begin uh, they're to like think. out of water well the average uh wage is not enough to buy enough calories to live for like if you work for an average wage and spend all your money on food you will die of starvation so i mean that obviously we can see the failure mode there right <laughs> yeah. but it's I guess basically turning into a lawless sort of mad max world i had something that was I thought really engaging, and I just dropped it. Or were we a second? We like were two saying that they ago. tried off, tried out a cool new idea that everyone thought, in theory, should absolutely work. Right. So, like, if we if we dive into that a little bit, like the the cost of getting that wrong before, in the ancestral environment, where we're, or you know, the ancestral environment of two hundred years ago, <laughs> was starving to death mm-hmm. or getting sick and dying thirty years later. Like, and it still what, is now. But is there anything that we can possibly think of? And maybe we can't, the three of us, in five minutes. But where like all right cool let's think if we got rid of factor x we could say sexism we could say college we could say uh segregation or something Mm -hmm. um if we were to change what we're trying to do to any of those those variables the 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 consequence of that isn't starving to death right so like if if we if we live in a post-sexism you know country in 50 years if it goes wrong it won't go wrong from us starving to death i mean I would say so, and I think sexism is such a bad thing anyway that I very strongly want to pursue it, even knowing that maybe it will result in half the country starving to death, because I don't think it will. But now I have to have this constant fear for the rest of my life that this is a thing I care deeply about and and am pursuing. But, you know, unintended consequences, maybe we're all fucked because of this. But that's, that's what I'm asking. Like, So the unintended consequences of not cooking your tubers right back in the day was cyanide poison. Mm-hmm. The and and so like then hence like personal death or death of your family and tribe. Yeah, I can't think of any mechanism by which like all right our family is going to go to trade school instead of college. That that's not going to lead you to you starving to death. Yeah, you're much less likely to suffer really extreme consequences like that in the non-ancestral environment. So we have more of a safety net to experiment now, which is cool. Yeah, we also didn't know that cyanide existed. Something might exist that we don't know of that has, you know, long-term build-up 30-year consequences. That's only pumped in the air conditioning units of, of universities or something? <laughs> like, <laughs> the whole point is I don't know. <laughs> Which is why you, I mean, you have to pursue what you're going to pursue anyway. This is thing, something I think is important, and I will work on it. It's just that now I can no longer do it with the unalloyed belief that I am doing everything perfectly right. There's always this, well, you might be wrong. Which is actually, like, a good thing to always have in mind, right? It is. I, I, I... I think that, I mean, I'm sure if you'd asked me a minute ago, I would probably would have said, I'm sure I'm doing some things like the best way that I can or something. But now, I mean, my answer is like, and now I feel like it's always been this way because I just had this thought for the first time is like, I'm doing it to, in this context. I'm doing it to the best that I can with the information I have. Mm-hmm. And so like, if it turns out that, you know, the first country to solve sexism and we, by by twenty one by the year 2100, it's this nightmarish hellscape where some crazy thing happened. Um, I, it they they did they made an honest mistake mm-hmm. by doing what seems to be the best thing to do, which was fix this problem, right? Yeah. I, I, I I'm not so concerned that any of like the ambitions that I have, because I'm not trying to you know do large world scale changing things yeah. i'm not i'm not concerned that anything i'm going to do is going to help bring down society and i i i'm still i'm, I'm like trying to, to hold back like a grin of just like the amusement of what could possibly go wrong and i realize that's what someone might have said it's like all right i'm hungry now i'm not gonna wait for this to cook or sit in the water for another day and yet this is our situation now is not like that 
Or is it? Am I missing something? <laughs> the or is it is the thing that you're missing. That, I mean, you How can I be sure it's not? Yeah. Hmm. I li- like Jess said, we have a safety net. We have more freedom to experiment because if whatever, th- I mean, we should just pick an example and stick to it. But like if desegregating schools is a bad idea. I think we would have known by now. We, well, hey, yeah, we would have known by now. So maybe pick, you know, I don't know. Um, no, I think that's a good example. Yeah. But I mean, like something that we're trying to aim for now then, right? Um, oh. Like. Uh, Getting more women in programming. Sure, yeah. Maybe, maybe that ruins the tech industry in 100 years for some crazy reason, right? I can't imagine how. The women get all their cooties all over your yeah. <laughs> code base. Damn it. Those, those cooties are like bugs. Eh, yeah, I don't know. Psy uh, actually exists, and female Psy makes computers not work so good. <laughs> right. Well, hey, if we prove the existence of, of that. Oh, wait, they don't do the million-dollar challenge anymore, do they? Didn't they retire that? Yeah, I think so I yeah don't somebody needs to pick that back up i know at one point they retired it and then reinstated it but now i think they may have retired it for good oh i'll have to double check i did just check a few weeks ago and randy is still alive which is great cool yeah um the the million dollar paranormal challenge is what i was re- what i was referring to which is if you can demonstrate supernatural paranormal or occult abilities under controlled test conditions which is basically just doing it in front of somebody who's like a trained magician um you can get a million dollars you could get a million dollars from james randy um so and discovering Psy, you know, so the first person to do that, at least, you know, while their startup might have failed, they can get a million dollars. I don't know. Are we completely hopeless in the age of science and rationality to think of ways? Oh, I don't think where... we're completely hopeless at all. No, no. To, 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 to think of like, okay, how could this go wrong? Right. Are, are, we, are we unable to answer those questions, you know, because we've always been done it this way? Because they've always done it that way for reasons that they didn't know about. Now we know those reasons, and we know a lot more about the world than we did before. So, like, fucking with things is different now than it was. Like, before it was just pure fuckery, and, like, you know, we'll throw the dice and see what happens. Now yeah. it's like, all right, we're going to, we're, we, yes, we're, we're spicing genes into our food. We have but some we know ex- as to why things happen. And we know exactly what we're doing when we're doing it, yeah. right? We test the shit out of things, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, there's, you're still going to get some unknown unknowns, which uh, ties into our sequences, but. FDA is pretty good at picking out which drugs are just going to kill you. Not perfect. They're much better. Yeah. And I mean, I guess what we haven't done is like run the three generation experiment of living on GMO food. Right. um, Or at least like in lab GMO food. Mm -hmm. You know, a scientific pedant like me will argue that from the second we started domesticating plant life, we've been GMOing our food for thousands of years. Yeah. GMO the shit out of our food. That's natural, dude. That reminded me. The most recent Very Bad Wizards episode that came out today was on the Big Lebowski. Oh, sweet. So, if you, the, the dude, yeah. I have not yet heard the... And Well, I think it's a, it was a two-parter because the one that just came out before was on Pulp... They were going to compare Pulp Fiction and uh, the Big Lebowski. Okay. They, they finally did the Pulp Fiction episode. And so it, it was going to be a comparison. And then they What's the did, comparison? Well, they, they were going to just talk about the two different movies okay. and how they, you know, how they relate, if they have anything in common. I'm not sure what the theme of the show is. They seem like very different movies. They are. They... They, I mean, it was fun. There, so there's two episodes is what I was getting at. The two most recent Very Bad Wizard episodes was on Pulp Fiction and The Big Lebowski. I think they both kind of, they both touch on nihilism, don't they? How you can't make that much of a difference in, I should just listen to the episode. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just remembering the line, those fucking nihilists. <laughs> <laughs> I should listen to the episode. They probably already thought about this much more than I have and are more eloquent. They just talked about it in their favorite scenes, and I, I, I don't give it my full attention. It's usually my commute podcast, so, like, I, you know, I'm not... Well, one of the big themes of The Big Lebowski was that, like, they didn't really change anything. Nothing they did really mattered in that movie, 
and in Pulp Fiction, like I just keep remembering that scene where uh, Vincent Vega, he's just hanging out in the apartment, and because he chose that time to go and take a shit, <laughs> and because Bruce Willis left his stupid watch behind, <laughs> managed to get Vega killed. And then they they talk a bit about too about how um, oh why am I blanking on his name uh the the big guy who's like man I want to give us a shit about the goddamn rules yeah, John yeah, yeah, yeah. John Walter. Goodman yeah Walter um how he's not quite a deontologist but he's very much of a rule based ethicist mm-hmm. where it's like <laughs> they're bowling <laughs> you don't need to whip out your fucking gun right <laughs> <laughs> the but, gun but was he, an overreaction but he cares about the rules yeah. So, yeah. Well, a little, why even yeah. have the rules if no one's going to follow them? <laughs> I found that gif and posted it in Slack today at work. The one where he's whipping his gun out. By the one who gives a damn up, I got the goddamn rules. <laughs> yeah. So, I will say that based on what you've been saying, um, I cheated a little by reading the... I don't know if it's cheating. Because I, I read all Slate Star Codex posts. But uh, soon after this, often after his really big in-depth posts, he'll have a best of comments on my post post. Mm-hmm. Which is great because sometimes there's a lot of comments. Yeah. I well, I just have a rule of not reading comments in general because in most places they're bad, toxic. I usually do the ones on Slate Star Codex are a bit better than average. Yes, they most are. of the time. But, but there's still don't so have many time to read 400 comments. I'll be honest, the only comments I read reliably are the ones that you put on or that that our listeners put on the BeijingConspiracy.com because right. they, I get emails when they come in. That's the only reason <laughs> I read them. Well, to me, it's because it matters to me. It's my thing. You know, yeah. that's probably why Scott also reads his comments because it's his thing and it matters that, to him. Yeah, totally. And so I love that he pulls out the best ones. Yeah. So um, one of them was Reasoner uh, on Chester- Chesterton's Metafence, who says... In our- Damn it. <laughs> we come up with the nerdiest names. <laughs> in our current system of democrat- democratic market economies with large governments, the common practice of taking down Chesterton fences is a process which seems well-established and has a decent track record and should not be unduly interfered with unless you fully understand it. So to your point... We've, for the past few hundred years, been demolishing traditions and replacing them with new things. And we got a pretty good track record doing that, so we shouldn't fuck around with demolishing traditions <laughs> if it's a good tradition that's worked gotta for us. Gotta respect my tradition of destroying traditions. Exactly. That's a great... Uh, oh, that wasn't their username. They defined a new uh, a new term there, I see. Reasoner yeah. was their name. Yeah, yeah. So let's break down some of the, the terminology there, because um, there's a lot of, of jargon in there. Oh, so, yeah. Um, it's a good idea to remember to do that. Yeah. Um, so for starters, Chesterton's fence is the idea that uh, first started by, I forget his first name, but his last name is Chesterton, obviously. Uh, he said that if you see a fence in the middle of a field and you are like, this fence is stupid, it's just blocking traffic, I'm going to take it down. His principle is you never take down the fence unless you know why that fence was put there in the first place. Because maybe it's stopping the barbarians from the other side coming over or, you know, the monster that doesn't know how to jump fences or something. Right. The uh, person was G.K. Chesterton, who also wrote books that talk about this same kind of topic, which makes sense because it's named after him. And that is often used by traditionalists and uh, more conservative-leaning people to say, stop fucking with our traditions. They might be here for a damn good reason. Well, and that, that actually relates really well to the point I was trying to articulate in my head, that like, the, the point, you don't, tear down a, uh, you don't tear down a fence unless you know why it's there. And in the days of listening to crows and doing what was written on ancient tablets and whatever, um, you, you didn't know why these were rules. So tearing down those fences could kill you. Now we know why the fences are there. Like we know why kings liked being kings and, <laughs> and like why they claimed, you know, that it was a divine thing. It's because being a king was fun. And I'm not sure if it was fun very often. Yeah, I, w- I watched back on that. To your, yeah. Yeah. I think I would not have wanted to be a medieval king. I seem to like die a lot that's the point out that's exactly what i was gonna say is they have like being a like being a dictator 
literally half the emperors of Rome were assassinated. Yeah, so like b being an emperor sounds like a very like dangerous job. Or let me rephrase that, Vida died a violent death. It wasn't always assassination, sometimes it was just on the battlefield. And so sometimes they just mysteriously die. Yeah, <laughs> so... Um, and yeah. yeah, so... We, so Chesterton's meta fence is that we currently have a tradition of breaking down traditions, so don't try to take down that tradition until you know why it's a good tradition. Oh, did Scott reply to that one? Uh, no, I don't think so. He oh. just pulled it out. That would have been nice. Yeah, so I think the the lesson that I'm taking from that is that, you know, like it might a good tradition might have been like, you know, don't... Um, in fact, this is, you know, this is in true parts of the world now. Like, don't stick yourself with a... Don't, don't let someone stick you with a needle and inject stuff into you. Mm. Like that... Hey... This went really bad for us 50 years ago. Let's or, and you know being stabbed historically for our for our species sucked. Mm -hmm. So let's avoid that. Now we know all the reasons why that was bad, or we know enough of them. Maybe there's some mysterious magic reasons still unknown to us about why being stuck with a needle is bad. But we know enough about the all the variables involved about why getting like a vaccine is a really good idea, right? Yeah. Even when we mess up, uh, we can generally figure out why we messed up and fix it. Yeah, a lot of this nonsense was pre-science. Like, sci science is the solution to these to this this horror hellscape of doing things for weird tradition reasons, right? I mean, not always. Science sometimes fucks things up as much as it helps. Like when uh, it was scientifically a great idea to give your baby's formula instead of breast milk because it gives the baby everything it needs, and it turns out that is not the case at all. In fact, it's the opposite of the case. Science is an I'm I'm going to double down. As an enterprise, we learned from that, That's true. and we've got better formula. Yeah. Right? We have a much lower infant death rate than we ever had in the history of our species. Like so, we you know I think science has a really good track record. Yeah, in general, it does compared to tradition. Like we we have like control groups. You know, we can look at. Uh, I don't want to say the Amish because apparently they're more <laughs> technologically savvy than we give them credit for. But we can look at um, modern day hunter gatherer societies and compare how we're doing in modern societies versus these uh, basically ancestral environments. Spoiler alert, lots better. But we still can't do double-blind studies on whether or not getting a blood transfusion kills your soul or not. So, <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Souls are so resistant to study. <laughs> uh, yeah. Citizen Coke Kane, Citizen Co-Kane? Like Citizen Kane, but with a co in there. Uh, says, Adhering to ancient traditions when the context is rapidly changing is a recipe for disaster. No point in mastering seal hunting if there ain't no more seals. No point in mastering the manners of being a courtier if there ain't no more royal court, etc. The problem is that, in the modern world, we can't simply all mutually agree to stop changing our context so that our traditions will continue to function as before because it is no longer our, under our control. Enlightened ideas would not have been nearly so persuasive if they hadn't had the prestige of giving countries like the Netherlands, England, France, and America an edge. So yeah, because uh, this was also in the context of a uh, conversation about how Enlightenment ideals like do often break with tradition. Like a big part of the Enlightenment is have reasons for what you're doing, apply reason and logic to these things, invented you know the process of science, and uh, yeah, since our our environment is changing so rapidly, the traditions don't help anymore. It'd be like having a tradition of people that grew up in a very arid uh, area that didn't have a lot of water, couldn't really support uh, farming, and then being transported to modern day New York or something. It's like those traditions don't help you in any way anymore. You need new ones. And our society is changing so fast that there's not that much to be lost in abandoning those old traditions and grabbing onto new ones. Yeah, I still think there's something to be said for examining them and trying to figure out what purpose they were serving. 
And he does point out that the Enlightenment values really helped out the countries that adopted them early. Like, made them take over the globe, basically. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if there's a food taboo or something that, you know, one successful group had for a thousand years, figuring out, you know, what was wrong with that food, and then like, oh, you need to do this to it to make it safe to eat. Then it's like, cool, problem solved, we need that now. He did point out that uh, at the time of the Enlightenment, uh, China, their Qing dynasty, I think that's what it was, uh, was in, you know, in a huge empire, controlled half the world, really advanced civilization, whereas opposed to these tiny little startup countries in Europe weren't jack shit. And uh, they stuck with their old traditions. They did not adopt this new Enlightenment stuff. And uh, they were in the process of a few hundred years, like basically destroyed and taken over by the British and uh, those other European countries. Uh, so, you know, sometimes holding on to traditions can be just as bad, especially when the environment is changing. Yeah, this, for some reason, I just, this popped into my head. Uh, I was thinking about the Revolutionary War and how American soldiers won because they were disorganized. The British would wear these bright red uniforms and they would line up and shoot, and then another one would line up and shoot, and then the Americans would just shoot at random and they didn't have uniforms, so they blended in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Chaos army. Basically a guerrilla warfare. (laughs) Kind of cultural evolution there. Uh, First Lid uh, continued this line of thinking, saying, this means we should be more accepting of people tweaking the new culture. We should also enforce it less strongly. Enforce what? The The culture? culture. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to tweak around, do whatever, but also don't don't really enforce it on people because you don't know if it's good yet, right? That's a good articulation. I was talking with Jess about this after we saw uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. Mm-hmm. That that's sort of been my like approach to, I guess, my modern cultural evolution for like the last five years. Which is like, you know, if I come across something that's unusual to me, I'm like I don't really get it, but you do you. Mm-hmm. But then I guess it does make sense to like say, all right, cool, because we don't really you know, this is a new thing, we don't know all the factories, let's not, like, legislate this just yet, whatever, or, you know, mandate this in the public sphere or something, right? Well, I mean, you were just talking about sexism, and that's a pretty new thing, too, right? Yeah, sexism was invented in 2016. No, no, no. Well, I mean, the whole pushback against sexism and giving, like, women only got the right to vote in, what, the 1940s? No, it's 1910s, I think. 1910s? In any case, too recent to be okay yeah it's it's like maybe a century now so this is still a fairly new th- thing uh, 1920 1920 okay i was closer yes you were gold star to, <laughs> gold star to me yeah yeah good job uh <laughs> but th- i mean the point being that should we also enforce this uh equality between the sexes less since it's still sort of a new thing that's being developed like if if subcultures within the u.s people living in rural alabama or people in strong catholic areas want to keep their sexism should should we bludgeon them with joining our society as as much as we would like that's interesting yeah or like mandating desegregating of schools right like i think desegregating is a great idea i'm not sure how i feel about forcing people to be bused to different schools that is much more controversial i mean but that's that's almost like a that's a whole other side thing but the the i think the short version is that like that that has other effects like it's that that's a consequence of like making that happen rather than just like the making the idea necessary right yeah um the anti i, I don't know i guess women's suffrage isn't that new so i guess i don't know how old does something have to be before we're like all right cool this worked let's let's mm-hmm. keep going well i mean desegregation is only the last few decades at least yeah, right? the, the 70s voting rights were given to racial minorities in 65 and so there's 
still plenty of people alive. There might even still be people... In 1965? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, so... I don't know if there's anyone who was alive in 1920. How old would you be? There are people who... There are barely there's, there's people, people alive. There's people that are that yeah. old. Yeah. Not very yeah. many. 99 at this point. If you were born in 1920, if you, like, actually remember the 1920s, yeah, then you'd, you'd be, be real old. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the... What am I trying to say? Or what was I going to say? I think the... Um, I mean, on the plus side, if it turned out, like, so we, we let's say we, we haven't been doing this in a scientifically controlled manner, but we can look at the areas that are, like, more desegregated or less sexist now than they were 100 years ago and see which areas are doing better. And, like, that's our experimental result, right? Now, we can't run the clock forward another 100 years and see maybe the desegregated, desegregated less sexist areas are going to be worse off in another century, but it seems like we're on the right track. And yeah. that, that's, all, that's all we can do, right? Unless we're unless we somehow discover some new hidden variable, I think the policy of enforcing it less strongly would have advised against forced busing, but that's in the past now. So I don't know what to do in a case where the traditional way is causing people harm. Yeah, like that. The reason that you know you would want to give women the right to vote and to desegregate schools is that this is this seems to be causing people to suffer, and fewer people will suffer. Yeah. And but it seems like you can't you can't really do a system which I think would be ideal of let the individuals decide whether they want to live in segregation land or desegregation land, because some people won't have the money to move (laughs) across the country and you know like families splitting up and. I think desegregation or I think segregation land though would over the course of a few decades suffer a serious brain drain, where the people who are smart enough and who do have the ability to move will move. And eventually they'll just collapse under the fact that all the talent has left. I mean, that kind of is happening to various parts anyway. Yeah. And, and I, I think, Jesse, you, you made a really good point. Like, like forcing, legislating changes and, and mandating them when they're solving a suffering problem makes more sense than like, like it would be, it might be weird to say pass a law where everybody has to eat exclusively GMO food. So like that, like right now, the status quo is like you can eat whatever you can buy at the store. And if you want to buy the non-GMOs, go for it. So like, but if, but if you're solving a suffering problem, then it makes more sense to say, look, now we need to actually, we're, we're going we're gonna to put the hammer down. We need to fix this. I don't know. There's various things that come up with that. Like we wouldn't actually be able to feed the world without GMO food techniques and, you know, factory farming. Arguably, there'd be much less suffering if we did force everyone to be vegan. That's true. So... I guess kind of by extension to what I'm saying, that sounds like that that would be a move that would piss off a lot of people, but it might not be necessarily a bad move. Um, unless, you know, I, I think, and I know vegans will correct me, but I think living on a vegan diet is more challenging to, it's, it's more challenging to maintain a nutritionally balanced life um, as a vegan than it is as an omnivore. One vitamin in specific, I forget which one, but it's one of the Bs, is extremely hard to get in a vegan diet. And like I have a fr- I have a coworker. He's he's I would love to talk about how he's raising his daughter for half an hour, because um, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's really cool. Uh, like I I can't get into all this stuff, but one short thing is that he and his wife are both quasi vegans, and they they try to be as not just vegan friendly, but as like environmentally friendly with all their food purchases and like clothing purchases and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was talking with them yes on Monday when we went out to lunch, and I was like, so how did you raise your daughter? And I I like Sam Harris put it this way, like he's he's like vegetarianism is the ethically correct choice. And he says like for him, for, for Harris himself that he tried a couple of times and both times he's gotten anemic and he just can't find the balance. 
And so he has two young daughters that he doesn't want to like raise on the science experiment of, I think this is the way to do it. Right. Um, so like, but if we knew the way to do Since it, he already knows it doesn't work for him and they share his genes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the veganism, that is a, a tough one. I wonder, I mean, Hmm. And then like the maniac, what if, uh, if you were to look at that society and say, these people are wasting so much time doing this complex processing technique, we should mandate that everybody just chops it and cooks it. Right. <laughs> and then you end up killing off the society. The idea of suffering is definitely a reason to change a system from the top down if you have the ability, but not always a good idea. Damn. thought I'd found the solution and I haven't. No, that's a I'm good point. I'm kind of wondering about maybe just popularity. Like, it seems like making everyone go vegan just wouldn't work now because it's too unpopular. People would rebel. It would never fly. But <laughs> I can see it It would literally lead happening. to civil war when people tried <laughs> the United States. They're coming for our bacon. <laughs> I think popularity is a good metric. Like, electric cars used to be the things that the, the busybodies, the prudes that would, like, always scold you for using plastic bags or something. They would drive it and you'd be like, God those people again and uh and i mean i bought a hybrid as soon as i could but uh i didn't mind being associated with those people but then elon musk came around and he made the tesla fucking cool and like now a zero emissions vehicle is like a huge status symbol that people chase put one in orbiting orbiting the earth like (laughs) i I literally can't think of a cooler thing he could do with one and i mean people could and probably did complain look he's making a high-end luxury vehicle that only the richest people can buy what the fuck good does this do for the planet at all? This is a waste of time. And yet he managed to make electric cars move into the popular imagination as something that you everyone can drive and many people aspire to drive, you know? That's the whole prestige thing again. Yeah. I think he did more by making that luxury high-end electric car than all the previous electrics and hybrids did combined. The downside is they're still like three times the price. Right. But I mean, I would, I would get, well, I don't know. I think over time, they're going to become more readily available. Totally. And, and also now, if you just buy a straight electric car, people don't look at you like you're some kind of, you know, snob. That's true. If anything, I mean, I don't know how. I mean, I, I live in a not well, like a not very nice area, not a bad area of Denver, but not like the posh area. And I see five Teslas a week. And I don't wow. even drive that much. There's a lot of Teslas here. There's also like two or three Tesla dealerships all over here. So maybe that's why. And maybe five is high, but I definitely see several a month i definitely see a lot more of them than i did in the east coast it might just be you know someone with a tesla lives near you so you drive past them a lot <laughs> i have I, I was at a stoplight not more than two weeks ago where i saw two teslas so okay. there's at least two okay <laughs> <laughs> cool oh uh, before we go on with uh user comments there was something that i wanted to add which i'm pretty sure was in the book and not in scott's post so i wanted to bring that up now as well um an interesting um consequence of this sort of cultural evolution and cultural intelligence thing is that larger cultures well there's two interesting consequences one of them is that larger cultures are better because you can only one individual human can only do so much and can only learn so much and can only become so specialized uh once you have a group of a hundred thousand humans you can specialize a lot more you can learn and implement a lot more refined interesting techniques and this just keeps scaling up at a population of the U.S. is like, what, over 300 million right now? There's a lot of things you can do to the point where, I mean, there's sometimes 
disaster scenarios of of zombie movies like what would happen if if 90% of the people died due to the zombieism or whatever i mean the first thing that would happen is that our entire society would collapse because at this point literally i, I know this is a common thing from econ econ 101 classrooms there is no person in the world that knows or has the capability of making a pencil the various parts come from so many different areas and the knowledge to get these things transport them and combine them is so diffuse among the human species there's literally no human alive that could make a pencil by themselves they don't have the knowledge they don't have the ability that's so cool yeah right and, and like a pencil's super simple right yeah and that's our entire well, society it, yeah so i mean one of those things is how do we feel about the more people we have the better the culture is the smarter it is can i interject with one quick joke sure oh wait it's a it's a endgame spoiler so i don't it's it's, it's not on blu-ray it's not on blu-ray yet i'm gonna I'll hold off on that All right. okay <laughs> well actually no it's it's fine uh there's a point where because if you saw infinity war thanos yes killed, and half the population goes away right instant chaos right. across the entire world i mean like things power, not power plants the way they were the, you know we go we the lights are on in your in your house right now we go to the faucet the water comes out like that's just shit that happens right it's not just that we would revert to the world as it was when the population was half what it is we would fall so much farther right there's a subreddit that I really like. So I follow two subreddits that are related in title. And one's called Movie Details, where it's like these cool little like, oh, did you notice this little thing? How fun. And then one's called Shitty Movie Details, <laughs> where it's like made up jokes about, you know, like this little thing. So there's there's a scene in Endgame where uh, our, um, Natasha's eating a peanut butter sandwich. And in the Shitty Movie Details, it's like, oh, that symbolizes because Thanos knocked half the things out of existence. So there's no jelly in the peanut butter <laughs> jelly sandwich. Awesome. Um, but... The, the actual point I was going to make was uh, I am actually a huge fan of that specialization. Like in, in a hunter-gatherer society, we'd be spending 14 hours a day tracking down lunch and dinner, right? Like we'd be chasing and killing our food. Like that sounds, that's exhausting. Now that I don't have to do that, and my, my closest grocery store is a five-minute walk away. And I was just talking with somebody today, and I mean, I've said this before, maybe not on the show, but like I, and we all do this. I offload a lot of my cognition onto my phone. And so I'm, I'm, I'm even like specializing myself away from having to remember to remember, remember to do things. I have a calendar that sets like reminding me to come to the podcast today. Being, being able to offload as many things as possible leaves you free to do more things that you want to do. It makes us more vulnerable. If I drop my phone, I'd forget what date I'm doing stuff. Sure. But I'm less happy about specialization because it's kind of soul numbing. Um, in the fact that we take a lot of the meaning in our lives by what we do, right? Like how we can be useful to the, those around us, those we love, uh, and society at large. And when you're spending 40 hours a week doing a super specialized task, like before, you would make a shirt. And you made a shirt with your hands. You wear the shirt you made or you give it to someone you love. Now, you, one person spends eight hours a day sewing the right hem on a shirt. Someone else spends eight hours a day sewing the sleeve hems on a shirt. Someone else like wove the cotton together by manning this giant machine for eight hours a day. It's yeah, it makes everything so much better, but it is soulless and deadening. And you feel like this tiny cog in a huge machine and nothing matters. And like, no one cares that you sewed the hem on the right side of their shirt. You know, they would if you didn't. Sure. <laughs> but it, it no longer feels meaningful to have yeah. a lot life. Jess tiebreaker. Oh, I don't know. I was just uh, when you were talking earlier, Steven, I was going to make a joke about how now you can be a brand ambassador for a shirt company as a viable career. <laughs>
that there's like niches of specialization that just weren't possible before. And I see all these funny articles now about like, here's the job titles that Gen Z is going to have. And they're these ridiculous specialized things like, uh, oh, I'm a advisor to tour guides to, you know, like, I, I can't even think of some of the funny ones right now, but hyper, hyper specialized. Yeah. Yeah. But like, um, I went camping a little while ago and I felt really satisfied doing like kind of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle type thing, like cooking over a fire. And it's like, this is like, you know, what we humans kind of evolved to do. And you can really feel it when you're out there doing it. It's like, this feels so satisfying versus, yeah, if you're sitting there for eight hours a day sewing a left hem, it's like, this is not what I evolved to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, this does not feel quite like as fulfilling as being out in nature and hunting for food and gathering water. Not to say that I was doing those things. <laughs> I was doing like a vague approximation of those things. You were simulating it enough to make your ape yeah. brain happy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, sure, you brought the food with you. You didn't have to, like, you know, catch a, a rabbit and skin it and cook it. But, like, you know, you, yeah, cooking over, I mean, I've, the, the most, I mean, I've never done anything like that in a way that would simulate the intestinal environment. That sounds like it could be fun. I mean, have you played Breath of the Wild? Oh, I never. Like <laughs> never heard of it. The entire appeal of that game is just that you get to, like, simulate being a hunter-gatherer. It's great. So the other implication that uh, also is a bit worrisome, like, first of all, the whole needing more population just leads to the repugnant conclusion, in my opinion. More is better, but more is also more meaningless and et cetera. Uh, the, and you matter much less as one out of 300 million than one out of 150. Uh, but also the, the idea that transmission of culture is uh, very key to have a high-fidelity cultural transmission and that is usually easiest done by people who are similar to each other um, and who don't have communication barriers, like uh, having different accents or different languages. It seems to almost uh, argue in favor of homogenization of culture because that makes the culture easier to pass down. It makes the culture easier to pass down, but harder to evolve or slower to evolve. That's true. And fast evolution is important nowadays. I feel like I'm less pessimistic about these ideas. As far as, like, homogenization and things losing meaning, the more people you get, like, I'm against the population expanding past the point where it can support itself, but assuming that we reach the grand transhumanist future and we're generating solar energy and there's enough food for everybody, yeah, I think it would be great, you know, um, if culture got larger. I also kind of am in favor of cultural homogenization to a point. It's already happening. Um, a lot of cultures are quote-unquote westernized. I've been saying quote-unquote too much. Mm -hmm. I hate when I do that. Um, and it seems to be working out. I mean, like, there, there's some sadness, and I see a lot of people, oh, um, it's so sad that people are losing their traditional cultures, and they're thinking of the really cool things about those cultures, like elaborate garments and, like, exotic-seeming traditions. And it's like, yeah, that... But then, like, you're missing out on, like, foot binding and, yeah. <laughs> and wearing, like, very uncomfortable garments instead of, like, T-shirts and jeans. Like, there's a reason that culture gets passed down um, and propagates, and some of it is that this is a better thing. T-shirts and jeans are pretty superior clothing to most other types of clothing throughout history. And that's a nice, like, although I think it was Matt Freeman. I haven't heard his actual, like thesis on this but he says that pants are like some of the worst like is like the worst garments i'm not sure why Huh? maybe i should we'll, have to, ask. we'll have to ask him as opposed to 
shorts? Or I'm not really sure. I skirts? can't remember. I mean, skirts have like the advantage of being cooler, but they're just much more impractical. I think this was a throwaway line on the Doofcast or something that I meant to ask him about and I forgot to. But so, I mean, you picked a nice example with like clothing and stuff. But I mean, you look at some of the, the awesome things that we're doing away with with westernizing countries or with Western, with westernizing cultures, like getting rid of slavery and female genital mutilation and... Uh, I don't know, uh, stoning gay people to death. Like, you know, all these things that, yes, when you westernize, you lose those things, but it's like, uh, do we miss them? <laughs> I mean, no. w- will we miss them when they're, when they're all, when it's just history? I, I certainly don't think so. It's hard. I mean, again, it's hard to think of an unintended bad consequence that, you know, if we, if the world stops stoning gay people to death, what, what terrible fate could befall humanity after that? I'm not worried about tearing down that shelling fence. Yeah, and like I'm also not convinced that we're going to become completely homogenized ever because people form their own subcultures within cultures. Like this one. This one. <laughs> I, I mean, even even when we get to the fun transhumanist future, I mean, if you're a 10-year flight from the nearest human uh, or from the nearest other culture of humans, they're going to be doing their own stuff. Yeah. You know, there'll still be... And then... I think this will this will continue to be a thing going forward. I haven't had a fun like transhumanism inspiring thought like feeling like this in a long time. That was nice. Awesome. It's pa- it's passing, but that was a good feeling. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to end with some pushback against this book, which uh, again comes from the best of comments section. Uh, first of all, there was the the which we already mentioned checking in with a few people with two year olds, and uh, they said that they put random plants in their mouths all the time. Uh, I'm going to have to ask my sister, but Stephen, apparently you had that basil thing, which was interesting. And that that baby is being raised near two dogs. So that doesn't validate my hypothesis. Or that is... I think it's unlikely that people would evolve to mimic dogs as well as other humans. Well, but I... I, That's definitely probably true. I'm just thinking that, like, my sister probably treats the dogs because they're about baby-sized like she treats the baby. And if, like, the baby sees, like, oh, they're doing that, it's okay. I also think that it would probably be much more common knowledge. Like, everyone knows that babies like to put everything in their mouths and that like they have a suckling instinct but like no one mentions the whole thing but yeah babies are weird around plants right like everyone knows that cats are weird around pickles and cucumbers that they freak the fuck out because they think they're snakes there'd be hilarious youtube videos if this were a thing yeah i think i think that would be more well known um but more to the point all right well then we all have to do what everyone who can do their part for science and scare or don't scare a toddler with plants and report back. There's a huge untapped market of hilarious baby videos on YouTube. <laughs> Damn straight. Uh, more to the point though, Enkers says, let's concentrate on the seal hunting description. It's clear that Heinrich's goal is to make the process sound as difficult as to achieve as possible, which yeah, um, obviously the explorer isn't going to be using caribou antler probes or polar bear harpoon tips. They're going to use some modern wood or metal that they stripped from their icebound ship. Then we hit, now you have a seal, but you have to cook it. What? The Inuit, the Inuit didn't cook their seal meat using a soapstone lamp fueled with whale oil. They ate it raw. I'm surprised that many people seem to have the instinct to continue to trust the parts of a story that they cannot confirm, even after they discover some parts are false. Which, uh, yeah. Roy Stinger adds, Wikipedia seems to suggest that they ate freshly killed meat raw, but cooked some of the meat brought back to camp using a cudlick, a, so- a soapstone lamp fueled with seal oil or whale blubber. Is that not correct? That would still flatly contradict, but you have to cook it. But it's close enough that the mistake doesn't reach making it up as he goes along levels of falsehood. 
Um, I personally do consider that sort of error a uh, a lie. Like I grew up in the Jehovah's Witness society where they like to prove that the religion is the right one because they actually were really big on enlightenment values. That's part of their downfall with, you know, training me on their religion because I absorbed the enlightenment values part and then applied them to the religion itself. But yeah, they, they often try to convince people with things, but they would leave out things that were inconvenient. Like he just left out the fact that the meat is often eaten raw to make it sound as difficult as possible to exist in the in the Arctic. And that strikes me as like just inherently dishonest. And yeah. once someone's being dishonest like that, I kind of, like I said, maybe, maybe don't trust the rest that how do I know that everything else he wrote wasn't also tilted and slightly dishonest in that way? There's a less wrong post about mistrust. Like once you've learned that a an authority, whether it be a book or a person, has been dishonest, then it throws everything else into doubt. And then, of course, the obvious example is the Bible being wrong about pie or, you know, whatever. Um, the number, not the delicious dessert. Um, <laughs> no one could be wrong about that. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, and I'm assuming that how they consumed like if if uh if uh god royce i don't know how to say their name royce star but with a g instead of an a um and another letter forget it um <laughs> if if they found that thing about dragging it back and cooking it with with uh you know whatever oil fire like he said if but if they found that on wikipedia i'm assuming the part of eating them raw was also on wikipedia which suggests that the author of this book didn't do due diligence or was deliberately misrepresenting stuff he absolutely had to know that yeah. there's no way he could have missed that considering how much else he knew that sucks yeah. anatoly points out uh, the quote on quadruped running seems inaccurate in several important ways compared to the primary references henrik cites which are short and very interesting in their own in particular humans still typically lock their breathing rate with their strides it's just that animals nearly always lock them one-to-one, -one, while humans are able to switch to other ratios. So yeah, for that reason, humans are a lot better at, uh, at long persistence hunting. But uh, Because we can regulate our breathing? Much easier, yeah. We can do it with different ratios based on different uh, running speeds, whereas animals are, I guess, always nearly one-to-one. One-to-one one what? Sorry. One-to-one uh, gait to breath. Every oh, time you okay, take gotcha, one, gotcha. one stride, you take one breath. Oh, that would be exhausting if you were sprinting and <laughs> yeah. like well, panting. Not only that, yeah. the humans manage to make them often have to go at a speed where it's not quite, you know, they can't quite do it right. Yeah. And they, uh, they run, uh, die of exhaustion or at least lie down due to unable ability to keep running. And then humans just walk up and hack their heads off. Can I jump in there really quick with like just eh, how much it would suck to be that animal that's being chased? <laughs> yeah. And that reminds me, it was another planet Earth thing where it was some sort of wild dogs, dingoes or coyotes or something had cornered an antelope. And like, they set up like a, like a, a pincer move where they, they, they lured it into a trap and then had some come in from this way and coming from that way. Like they coordinated this attack awesome. and this gazelle or antelope or whatever it was ran into a lake hmm. and it was just out there swimming and they're just pacing the edge of the lake, waiting for it, to waiting for it to like either like give up and drown which it's not going to do it's going to walk back to shore and get killed and it was like the saddest thing to watch and i'm just i remember that was less cute than the monkey so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah that's i mean i consider that less of a sin because saying that it's completely adaptable and they can switch to a lot of ratios isn't as big of a misconstruction in my opinion but it's again indicative of a this book has some worrisome things about it interesting yeah yeah, I think I forget if this was one of the comments that was pulled out. Somebody had mentioned, though, that this book wasn't supposed to be like 
a scientifically rigorous journal, this is supposed to be persuasive writing. So I don't think that any of these were lies. These were actual stuff that this guy pulled out. Maybe the plants thing. I don't know about that one, but like, it seems more like he was just picking the most extreme examples to make a point, which isn't, I don't think, a sin. But I do think like, yeah, like I'm squinting at some of this stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. Like this, this wasn't a scientific treatise on like, here's how things went down. This was, this was examples of extreme scenarios where most of it's more or less tr- accurate, where it's like, you know, it, it is a fact that, you know, the conquistadors uh, died of malnutrition while consuming all the corn they could eat. Right. Yeah. So it like parts of that are true enough for the point for the thrust of the book to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I am much less worried about the horror epistemic hellscape now that I am less convinced of the book. <laughs> now that you can reason, your, now that you can reason to yourself that maybe the book's bullshit, now you can be less worried. <laughs> yes, <laughs> or maybe the book is like twenty percent bullshit, so I can be twenty percent less worried. There you go. Yeah. Alrighty, so we've been at this for a while, <laughs> and we should move on. But this was a fun post, like many of Scott's posts are, and really f- interesting book. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the conversation about it. So. Yeah. Shall we move on to the less wrong posts? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's uh, do this fast-ish because we've been at this for a while already. Yes. Cool. All right. Um, the first one is risk-free bonds aren't. <laughs> this whole thing is about how Eliezer's annoyed by the phrase risk-free bonds. Um, he says, America's a young country. Um, he compares it to the lifespan of the Ottoman Empire, Austria-Hungary. And... Be- before we get to this... Uh, the thing he was particularly annoyed about is that the, I think this is actually true, the most secure bonds in the world, or what's considered the most secure bonds in the world, are U.S. Treasury bonds. That those are the least likely to default, uh, the least likely to lose value. If you want to put your money in some place that's safe, the very best you can do is buy U.S. Treasury bonds. And for that reason, people sometimes refer to them as risk-free, because the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt and its yeah, and like we don't have a very long history. Until I remember a presidential candidate like three years ago was saying, "What if we just default on our debt and try to get a better deal?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Not realizing the massive impacts that would have on the world. Well, it's worked so well for him so far. So. <laughs> yeah. So, examples of things that could make these bonds risky: um, the U.S. is a democracy. "Quote: If enough people vote for representatives who decide not to pay off their bonds, they won't get paid." Um, Eliezer mentions a scenario where a populist leader could get voted in who could destroy the economy and cause China to stop buying our bonds. And then also there could be terrorists. And then a global pandemic could hit. And yeah. He also points out that citing the good track record of the U.S. alone and not all governments across government histories, the histories of governments existing, uh, is uh, pure survivorship bias. Even not even pointing out the the um, lifespan of all governments that have existed since the U.S. government started, right? Just in those 300 years, should at least compare it to other governments that have come and gone in that time period. So you're looking at the one that has survived this whole time and saying, you know, look, that sort of soldier survived the war. Obviously, surviving wars is easy. The same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about economies or money or investing to answer this, but like if... The, if the U.S. defaulted on, if, if treasury bonds defa- defaulted and they were suddenly worth nothing, would a dollar still be worth anything? Like, I mean, at that at that stage, isn't all your money fucked basically no matter what, unless you've invested out of country? 
No, not not necessarily, because I mean, a dollar at this point is worth whatever people think it's worth. It's just people would think it's worth less once tre uh, the treasury defaults on on its debt, but it's not necessarily entirely worthless right away. Okay. Like if I was still willing to give you a cup of coffee for five bucks, then it's still worth a cup of cup of coffee, or one fifth of a cup of coffee. <laughs> right on. Um, Eliezer references the Nassim Taleb book Black Swan. I brought that up a little bit earlier, which is about the impact of unknown unknowns. Uh, specifically, this book warns against the dangers of induction, the ludic fallacy, hindsight, and survivorship bias. Um, he pulled out this Talib quote, Instead of putting your money in medium risk investments, you need to put a portion, say 85 to 90%, in extremely safe investments, like treasury bills, as a safe class of instruments as you can manage to find on the planet. The remaining 10 to 15% you put in extremely speculative bets, as leveraged as possible, preferably venture capital-style portfolios. That way you don't depend on the errors of risk management. No black swan can hurt you at all, beyond your floor, the nest egg that you have in a maximally safe investment. And then uh, after this, he wonders, did Talim forget to apply his own principles? And he says, I think if you advise your readers to invest 90% of their money in extremely safe instruments, you should certainly also warn that it had better not all go into the same instrument. <laughs> there was a line there, um, like, maybe Talib knows something that I don't, but it seems like he forgot to apply his own tools, that he's, the point that he's making to this thing. And I wrote something, but I guess it didn't save when I was doing it late, earlier, but um, I couldn't find the exact passage in Methods of Rationality, but where Harry's thinking, it's sadly when we most need our tools that we forget them. Mm, and right. it's... You know, this isn't exactly like when you most need it, but it, it, yeah. it, the the tone of his response to Talib's quote there felt so resonant that it, it immediately brought that to mind. But Yeah, yeah. the end was... Uh... Oh, can I jump in with a... Oh, go ahead. Thing? Uh, he said, um, Eliezer said, I anticipate particular black swans, such as AI, nanotech, biotech, that I see as having a high chance of striking over the lifetime of a 30-year treasury bond. But even if you don't share those particular assumptions... Do you expect the United States to still be around in 300 years? If not, do you know exactly when it will go bust? Then why isn't the risk of losing your capital on a 30-year treasury bond at least 10%? And, uh, you know, I thought that was both interesting and, again, an insight on his particular worries and the time scale that he's thinking in. I get to avoid a lot of problems by just not having an investment portfolio. <laughs> Actually, I do have a small one um, with, uh, well, small, with Kansas City Life. Um, and they are, uh, Rudy Hoffman, again, the cryonics guy that I mentioned before, um, he sold me just on how awesome Kansas City Life is as an insurance company. Right. They're apparently debt-free. They okay. own all of their properties, even like their offices and stuff. Huh. And he's like, so even barring like a zombie apocalypse, like they're going to be like the last one to go under because they're not going to default on loans. Um so my my investment is now I pay a higher insurance premium, but when I get to be a certain age, there's like a cash bonus that I get on top. Like not, it doesn't increase my death payout, but it's money that I just can just take whenever I want. So um, it's very little right up until like I get into my 80s. But if I live to be like in my 90s, it's in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and he says, and I think one of the, near the end, he says the safest instruments you can find on this planet aren't very safe, which... It's just, you know, a thing that I consider in my life often. I wonder where Elias invests his money. Like, if it 
is there safer things than bonds? Like I get like to call them risk free. He made the very good point that that they're not. Yeah. But like the it, Vanguard stock index fund is pretty good too. That's another very solid one and is also tied to the U.S. economy. But again, that has the problem that it's kind of tied to. The, it's not just the U.S. economy, but much of it is based in the U.S. economy. I mean, part of the problem here is if the U.S. economy goes down, the whole world is gonna be yeah seriously fucked. That quote that you just said um, started with "There's always risk management, and you're always exposed to error." And both of those always is where links to previous sequences. One was the proper use of humility, and then the other was Suyoku Naritai. So, yeah, he's saying we need to get better at and be braver about applying our rationalist principles to real-life scenarios like investing. And um, a couple of the comments had, there's some caveats. TC doesn't think investors literally mean risk-free. It's just an expression of high confidence. Um, Peter McCluskey says his descriptions of treasury bills as extremely safe seems accurate enough for practical purposes. He also doesn't think that typical investors should follow Taleb's advice, but it seems plausible that some should. And also, good investing is mostly about avoiding big mistakes, not about perfectly avoiding all errors, which I think are good points. Um, Michael Sullivan said Taleb's advice is extremely faulty, at least for long-run investing. The black swan event that makes you that makes a more fully diversified debt equity portfolio fail disastrously in the long term, uh, 20 plus years. This has a fairly high likelihood of taking out a short-term U.S. Treasury portfolio as well. So, I've got nothing to add since I don't know anything about investing. I've never even heard of the Vanguard thing you mentioned. It's so. basically just a distributed um, diversified fund mutual that yeah buys the 500 uh, biggest companies in the stock market and keeps all their money in them. I've definitely like probably seen the logo, but yeah. The, the main difference is that most investment funds are quote unquote managed by someone, which means that there's someone like looking at stocks and reading companies' histories and what they're planning to do. And he's like, okay, we should invest in East Asia now. Okay. Or now we should pull out of East Asia and invest in gold. And now, you know, we should pull our money out of gold and invest in stocks instead. So they have, uh, and I mean, sometimes they do really well when they guess correctly, but it's basically guessing. Uh, and they have high management fees because, you know, you're paying someone to actually do this thinking and managing of the money. Yeah, you're paying some expert. Yeah. Paying whereas, some divination expert. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the index fund is literally just trying to get um, a representative sample of the entire stock market. And so if over the course of se- uh, 30 years, the stock market increases 2% per year every year, the fund should do more or less the same. It has rock bottom management fees because you're literally doing nothing except for trying to get, you know, one of each of the 500 biggest... Eight, I think it's that's why they call the Vanguard 500. I could be wrong about that, but it's basically trying to get a representative sample of the entire stock market. And, uh, you know, you're never going to beat the market. You're never going to manage to invest in, like, a ton of money in Google before it goes big or Walmart before it goes big and get these 10,000% returns. But you will steadily follow the market, and over the long run, uh, no one does better than the market on average except for those people that invested in crypto that's exactly what i was on gonna average. say on yeah. average was, was your nice caveat that, that cut me off there but yeah um some people scored big which was dope bitcoin is was up to twelve thousand recently i think it's up over ten thousand again right now god damn it <laughs> i sold all my stuff like two months ago because i got oh, sick no. of looking at it it was coming back up finally okay and i was like all right now i'm only down 600 bucks like because i've been down like 1800 bucks yeah. for like a year and a half i'm i'm sick of looking at this five times a day i'm gonna uh, just I'm gonna just cut my losses i'm not gonna look at what my what what my losses or what my potential gains would have been if you're investing but, in something even bitcoin you should never look at it more than like once a month 
if you look at it five times a day, you're just setting yourself up for this kind of thing. This was in uh, not shitty movie details, the subreddit. In movie details, um, there's a headline banner coming, like there's a big TV in Times Square, and like the little like news feed along the bottom of news shows. One of like little spikes was Bitcoin, Bitcoin at all time high, and the very next one was Bitcoin at all time low. So if you're, if you're investing in Bitcoin, you should be checking it five times a day. What could will that help you? Because then you'll see the five hours, or, you know, the five minute window where it's up, uh, where it's at twelve thousand instead of eight thousand. Only if you've pre-committed to sell when it gets to twelve thousand. Well, right. Most people, when it gets to twelve thousand over the course of an hour, will be like, "It's gonna keep going. I'm gonna hold on." That's the mistake I made. What I should have done is listen. I asked my my investor, my financial planner friend, what I should do, and he's like, "Here's what you do: commit to a number. When it hits that, sell. And when it, and if it goes below that, sell." And I didn't do that, and I lost money. So, Justin, you were right. <laughs> In the past couple of days, it's now down to ninety-seven hundred. Which, you know, like literally uh, a week and a half ago, it was at over 12,000. Yeah. So, I mean, but, you know, it, it, crypto is weird. As, yeah. That's not, that's not, I, I feel like there's, I'm sure there is a special word for that kind of investing. Volatile. Volatile. Oh, well, that kind of investing? Just well, risky. Gambling. Yeah. yeah. It's straight up gambling. Yes, yeah. Yes. All right. That's what you put 10%. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> so I had Litecoin and Ethereum, and those are actually down substantially from when I sold. So if okay. I held on, I probably would watch them go up for that week, and then like, oh, my, my number's finally coming in, and then I would have lost it all again. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I can rest easy. All right. Next post? Yes. Yeah, right. we got correspondence bias, which starts with this quote. The correspondence bias is the tendency to draw inferences about a person's unique and enduring disposition from behaviors that can be entirely explained by the situations in which they occur, which was uh, Gilbert and Malone. When I learned about this phenomenon, it was, it was in the context of psychology, where they call it the fundamental attribution error. Yeah, what I pulled out was pretty much right after that. When you yourself kick the vending machine, it's because the bus was late, train was early, reports overdue, and now the damned vending machine ate your lunch money for the second day in a row. We attribute our own actions to our situations, seeing our behaviors as perfectly normal responses to experiences. But when someone else kicks a vending machine, we don't see their past history trailing behind them in the air. We just see the kick for no reason we know about, and we must think they're a naturally angry person, since they lashed out without provocation. And I think that was almost verbatim rewritten re in Methods of Rationality, so hence it's doubly stuck in my head. Okay. Um, yeah, they called it the fundamental attribution error in Methods of Rationality. Good, yeah. So. Um, that's how I remember it, even though it's a much longer title. Right on. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's one of those things that, like, I think makes it really easy to, in a moment, if you have a second to, you know, be reflective and mindful to, like, not judge people. Mm -hmm. um, if you can, if you see consistent bad behavior, then fine. Um, and, like, there are some things where, like, it's hard not to assume they're an asshole. Like, if I see somebody throw, like, a cup of, like, you know, like a soda can out the window while driving, it, it's hard for me to paint a backstory for them that doesn't make them a jerk. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you see somebody, I don't know, whatever, be grumpy or something. Um, where where was this very recently? It might have been, um, oh, it was on Sam Harris's most recent podcast with Ricky Gervais, which was a lot of fun. Okay. Um, but he had talked about, I can't remember the specifics, but I had the same thing. Like 10 years ago, I was getting glasses and the woman helping us was being a complete jerk. I can't remember what the specifics were, but she was being so bad that my mom was there helping me buy glasses. This one might have been 15 years ago as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And... Um, she was like, then when that woman left, my mom was telling like the other person that was helping us how much that other person was being so unhelpful and mean. And 
when mom was telling me that she was going to go tell, like, what, that she was going to talk about this with the manager or whoever we were talking to next, I was like, you really don't have to. We don't know if they're having, like, a really bad day or something. Mm-hmm. And I used the example, like, maybe their dad just died or something. Like, we don't know. Yeah. And my mom, I think, I didn't do a good job of explaining where I was coming from. But it was more just, like, I wasn't prepared enough to, like, give this person a hard time because, like, I'm never going to see them again. So, like, whatever. But, you know if someone's being a dick or, you know, being rude or being short or blunt or not responding, you know, to a text or something like you don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't, it's not, it's not necessarily indicative of their underlying personality and hence not a reason to judge them as a person. Yeah. As, as the quote says, there's more late buses in the world than mutants born with unnaturally high anger levels. <laughs> yeah. And most people's dispositions aren't going to be that far from average. Yeah. Um, so why do we why do we do this thing? Um, Eliezer says it seems quite intuitive to explain rain by water spirits, explain fire by fire stuff like phlogiston, explain the soporific effect of medication by saying it contains a dormative potency, or in other words, people seem to assume that things have these innate traits as another kind of mental shortcut. Reality usually involves more complicated mechanisms, an evaporation and condensation cycle underlying rain. But mechanisms sound more complicated than essences. They are harder to think of and less available. That reminds me of what Dan Dennett talked about in Breaking the Spell. It was the hyperactive agency attribution error or something. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was hmm. hyperactive agency attribution something. So is okay. that like just assuming people have more agency than they might? So he was talking about it in the context of like assuming agency behind random stuff like you know thor making rain or like when snow falls the example i remember from the book was like when snow falls off the roof during the winter and the dog gets up and like who's that barking Mm -hmm. and it's like it's nobody it's it's snow maybe we also attribute too much agency to people from seeing the actions of it right um he didn't he didn't use it that way in the book and i don't know uh I'm not going to speculate on whether or not he would agree with that assessment, but that seems like the kind of same kind of mistake, right? Yeah, that where, matches like my anecdotal experience where you like see somebody do something and they're like, "Oh, they deliberately did that in order to make me feel like that," and like the, the person didn't even know you were in the room. Or <laughs> he also brings up the false consensus effect, where people think that others are more likely to respond the same way they do to things. For example, uh, at a university, drinking students considerably overestimated the fraction of fellow students who drink but non-drinkers considerably underestimated the fraction. So, uh, yeah, most people thought that everyone else was like them, which uh, I think explains a lot with the people who say, I do not understand how, I know we've talked about this this before, I do not understand how opposite group could possibly think X, you know? That everyone thinks, you know, most people are much like them, which is not the case. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm, just randomly thinking now i didn't drink in high school and college uh at least not until later in college but i all my friends did so i don't know what my estimate would have been i probably would have overestimated because my my sample size was you know mostly drinkers eliezer at the end says suppose i gave you control with two buttons a red button and a green button the red button destroys the world and the green button stops the red button from being pressed which button would you press the green one Anyone who gives a different answer is probably overcomplicating the question. And yet, people sometimes ask me why I want to save the world. And I just thought that was interesting because when you see someone trying to save the world, that is often the thing you think of first, right? Well, what apparently he's run into that. Like, why are you trying to save the world? What's the thing that we think of first? Why is someone trying to save the world? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess to me that's like kind of a no-brainer. But I'm, I mean, one of our first ten episodes was with somebody who wanted to destroy the world. Yeah, yeah, it was. So, uh, I don't know what to do about. I mean, I'm. I almost said I don't know what he's, or I don't know how, why he thinks, or how he thinks that. Yeah. But um, we did talk about it for an hour and a half, and I get where they're coming from, but I just completely disagree on all accounts. So. But you do understand why he thinks it. So. I understand why he says he thinks it. <laughs> right. I'm not convinced. I mean. And I think I can't remember if I said this back then or not. I'm not convinced that if they were put in front of this button that they'd press it. Because, like, assuming they have friends and loved ones, they would all die, too. Like, it's, this isn't just, like, an altruistic good I'm doing for the universe. It's like, you're killing everyone you know and love. It, it's, for, it's for the best. I, in college, I was in that same mind space. And I, at least I said I would do the same thing. I, now I don't want to stick to that. Maybe I would have at the moment, like, backed down and been like, no, I can't do this, but. Um, I, I often wonder about like the trolley problem like would I be able to push the fat man to like save the three people like you want to say the correct utilitarian answer which is yes one life for three but like I I don't know like Stephen what if you see someone like was just fatally injured is in horrible crippling agony on the street you know they're going to bleed out in about an hour and a half and it is impossible to save their lives like literally impossible they're going to die is it a better thing to just end them quickly and mercifully now so they don't have that hour and a half of agony first i still wouldn't press the red button no no, no but would you with that one person would you do that i know but I, i'm i'm challenging the analogy you're making well no it's it's a very simple analogy when you think that everyone in the world is in that position and that that position is inevitable consequence of being alive and conscious but, but most of us are enjoying the ride most of the time right yeah. but but if but you don't I, understand that when you're in that mind space but yes yeah, so there's run at the point totally i you know if i was on the battlefield and my my comrade had just been shot and you know or bayoneted and yeah. like yep we're never going to be able to get you i you know i would like to think i could mercy kill them yeah. um so or at least i would think it's the right thing to do i wouldn't stop somebody else from doing it let's put it that way yeah so um I like to focus on the part of that question about the button, which was saying that uh, you're just oversimplifying the problem or the question. I forget. Overcomplicating. Overcomplicating. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably true of a lot of these cases where we are kind of looking at someone and trying to figure out what's going through their mind, why they did that thing. And um, I'm thinking about Alain de Poton, who is a... He's got like some books and TED Talks, and he's the founder of something called the School of Life, which is this cool uh, school designed to teach people like the stuff they don't teach you in school. One of the things that he had talked about on a interview that I was listening to with him was the idea that often like somebody's in a really bad mood, and we're like, oh, they maybe they have clinical depression and they need antidepressants, or oh, it, it might be because this thing happened earlier that day, or and then like he's like, but like, did you ask him if they're hungry? Hmm. like it, and it, he says when you think of a child who's having a tantrum like you wouldn't be like did something really bad happen to this child early this day and it's still on his mind and then also this other thing and then maybe as clinical to felt like you'd be like did, is this kid hungry does he need a nap yeah kind of interesting that we don't do that with adults even though very often like the reason that someone's in a bad mood might be because they need a nap or because they're hungry yeah. it's like usually maybe it's just a much more simple explanation I like that. And and this actually relates to the same coworker with, who's raising his daughter in that really cool way. He mentioned that, like, so usually if we go out to, like, the, the office caters lunch on Wednesdays, and so, or pays for it, we go get it ourselves. But he'll usually save a portion to eat right before his, like, his train slash bike ride home. Because he says, I realized, like, a few couple, I don't know, when, some, some time ago, that if I just didn't eat, like, 
from lunch to like when I got home, I'd come home hangry mm. and I wouldn't notice like any, eventually he noticed like I, I'm just pissed until I sat down and had something to eat. So he's like, now I just take care of it before I leave for work or leave, leave for home. That's and awesome. so it is a super mundane explanation. Um, and it's, you know, could have been a fine day or whatever. So, um, I like that. Yeah. You could be painting some elaborate backstory, but <laughs> that's a really good way to think about it. It's like, are they, are they hungry? You know, maybe a headache, like just, you know, some, some super mundane thing. Mm. I like that a lot. Yeah kind of helps as a strategy to try to knock out some of the low-hanging fruit, too. Um, in the comments, Robin Hansen said, The less you know about someone's personality, the more you should infer about their personality from their behavior. So mm. it's reasonable to infer more from their behavior, from the behavior of others, than yourself. The problem instead seems to be overconfidence. We infer far more than is reasonable, given only a small behavior sample. And then uh, the rest of the comments section devolves into pro-singularity versus anti-singularitarian arguments because of the uh, would you push the button thing, right. uh, which I don't want to get into. No. So That's there if you want to read that. <laughs> so so Hansen's point is that, I mean, yeah, it's Bayesian evidence of their personality, mm-hmm. but it's weak Bayesian evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, that's, a good, that's not a so much of a disagreement as it is, yeah, like you said, caveat. Technically, the point, yeah. I mean, if someone's doing dick things, it is more likely that they're a dick than they're than that they're not, assuming you know nothing else about them. Right. Right. But remember that it's weak evidence because you only have this one data point. Exactly. Neat. Leave to Robin Hansen to always, yeah, add some add some subtlety. I was. I mean, this is not. This is sort of related just to personality stuff. I never watched uh, Mister Rogers. Okay. As a kid, somehow I missed it. I, I was aware that it existed, but I watched pointless TV and not wholesome television. And I, over the last couple of weeks, I've just been like, maybe I, I should watch that movie that uh, Tom oh, Hanks did. Seen that? Um, no, I'm sure it'd make me cry and be amazing. Won't yeah. I be my neighbor? Yeah. Is that what it's called? I think so. Okay. Um, but the person of Mr. Rogers, from my model of him, is, and like I've read anecdotes on Reddit and, you know, short, short snippets. He just seemed like the embodiment of wholesomeness. Yeah. And it's it's like knowing that a person like that existed means that it's possible to be that kind of that it's possible to be that kind of person. Right. And I find that really attractive, like just in a in a an inspiring sort of way. And I'm not I'm currently in the process of working out like how to integrate not going full Rogers because I don't know how I would do that. Mm-hmm. But I think you need a sweater vest. Yeah, <laughs> uh, then I'll never make it. It's it's <laughs> ninety something degrees out today. But I don't know. I, I think in, in, this is totally unrelated to the podcast in general, but just for me, I'm trying to find ways in my life to be like just more genuinely wholesome, like when I interact with other people. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, unless it's like good natured counter signaling, uh, like with friends or something, like jokes like that, um, like just little things like never giving people a hard time or making them feel bad or like being, I don't know, like bizarrely compassionate. There was like an anecdote I read where um, somebody came, like they were on the show. And their little sister came with, but they were like too young to go on stage or something. And the, she was like on the stage, like on the side of the lines, like crying. Oh. And not because she was sad, like because she wasn't on the show. She was just overwhelmed. She was a big fan and stuff. Okay. And apparently this person's recollection was like, he like knelt down, put his hand on her shoulder. And was like, what's wrong? Like, let's talk. You know, why are you feeling this way? And like that level of approach is just so inspiring I, I mean, I, I can imagine I'm, I'm looking forward to being around my niece when she's throwing a tantrum. It'd be much easier for me to do the Rogers thing because she's not constantly doing it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and you are but, sleep deprived. And, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when, when you're when you're the parent and, and they're exhausting you all the time, it's different. But I'm, I'm looking I'm going to try something like that when this when this happens in my life. 
and see how it works. Like, you know, again, they're probably just hungry or something, right? It's probably some bullshit thing where, you know, the kid doesn't know that they're, they're upset because they, you know, they miss lunch or something, right? That's why but, cool uncles inc- increase the survival odds of a tribe. Perfect. Parents <laughs> wouldn't murder their own children out of frustration as much. It's a really good Evo Psych theory, actually. <laughs> there we go. I love it. And that means that I'm still contributing to the gene, to, to the, the success of my species, even if I don't have kids. Absolutely. Just be nice to kids. Yeah. All right. So. So for next time. Yep. For next time, we will be reading the posts. Are your enemies innately evil? Question mark. And also two more things to unlearn from school. So we'll have awesome. those. And um, we've been going at this for a while. Do we want to skip uh, the side topics and the uh, listener feedback and get to those later? There's no time for feedback for sure. Yeah. Um, I was actually thinking, since we've skipped feedback twice now and some has been piling up, do you want to make our next episode one of those get through the backlog of feedback episodes? Uh, we could crunch through some feedback. Yeah. I'm flexible. We'll get we'll get into them, you know, either piece by piece or wholesale. Okay. We'll we'll do feedback sections. Cool. Maybe we'll just do a shorter episode at some point. Like we'll 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 time block a short topic. Yeah. All right. We'll figure it out. Um, that said, we are never out of time to thank our awesome patrons Hell who no, make aren't. the show possible and allow us to, you know, buy equipment, keep the lights on, pay the hosting bills, and all that stuff. So. This week's uh, patron that we're over eager to thank is Matthew Cutler. Thank you so much, Matthew. This is uh, all thanks to you. No, no, no other patrons this week. It's nope. you're the one today keeping the show alive. So absolutely, thank you. And can I just say how happy I am that at one point we were getting close to the bottom of our list of patrons. I was like, man, what's going to happen? When-? Did I mention this before? I think so, but it keeps okay. happening. It, yeah, it, and, and like, and then more people jump in and it just it makes me feel so good to like see that we have a a nice comfortable buffer of people to thank still that like people like us and and we are doing something of value for our society and helping our culture fidelously transmit its cultural thingies that's right that said (laughs) that doesn't mean that we don't want you know if you feel like supporting the show you can find us at you know on patreon um you can rate and review on itunes all the the podcast things i always feel weird saying those because everyone knows all that stuff yeah this isn't this isn't your first rodeo if you're listening to this podcast you've heard other podcasts and just sharing it like with your friends and family can also help too if you think they would be receptive this is kind of thing obviously don't share it to people who you don't think would be a good match like like don't force things on them because the culture is still new and being experimented with right (laughs) <laughs> to tie it back to what we were or saying or do because what could go wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's not like they'll develop cyanide poisoning <laughs> i did mention it to my doctor and i think she's listening to it now oh, really so <laughs> neat but uh yeah yeah so thank you again matthew cutler that's awesome and uh thank all of you guys for listening and for being such awesome listeners yeah thanks for doing what you do we super appreciate you yeah yeah I think, uh, oh, last thing, because we usually have the last few seconds for outro music, so this will all be drowned out. <laughs> uh, Taika Waititi is directing Thor 4. Yes. So there's oh, two, two, bi- two bits of good news there. One, Thor, Thor 4 is happening. And two, Taika Waititi, who directed Thor Ragnarok. And, uh, like, I mentioned it, what we do in the shadows. Have you seen that, Inyash? Uh, I haven't seen it. I've heard many things about it. I think you'd like it. It's, it's a vampire mockumentary. It's a complete joke of a movie. It's hilarious. This is the guy that they said, hey, here's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Go make a Thor movie. And he fucking crushed it. So I'm looking forward to seeing him do more uh, MCU stuff. I am too. I'm so happy that Ragnarok got back to the humorous roots. Um, the first Thor movie, like, 
it was i was like how are they gonna make thor cool they made it a comedy i was like perfect he's a ridiculous character and then like oh now we'll do dark world and we'll try to make this a serious thing Hmm. god it was bad i never saw it based on everyone's recommendations to not see it except mine which was it was fine so (laughs) (laughs) it was fine is not high praise from steven (laughs) it it was fine is like steven saying that was a two out of (laughs) ten for a more i mean you're, you're excited about things often, especially MCU things. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's so great. I liked it. Like hearing it was fine is like, ooh. Wow. I mean, I, I liked it. I, 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 I've, never, I'm, I've never made the point of ranking them in my head. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like Thor 1 was about like Thor self-actualizing as a hero. Thor 2 is like, what badass hero stuff does Thor do when he's got, you know, on his, in his free time? <laughs> and, okay. and Ragnarok was like, let's go balls to the wall. And, uh, you know, have a... Basically, I think Taika Waititi knew that Chris Hemsworth was a really funny person mm-hmm. and said, let's, let's utilize that more. So yeah. Excellent. All right. MCU stuff is happening. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. all right. Last thing, movie Last. stuff. I saw Stuber, which was the movie with, uh, uh, Kamel Nanjiani and, uh, uh, Dave Batista, who okay. we saw in that wrestling thing that we went to yeah, a few yeah. months ago. Um, it had a lot of fun hype. I love both those people. They both seem very wholesome. I've liked uh, Batista was um, Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy. And Kamel Nanjiani's. I've listened to his podcast back when he did one. He's been a comedian for ages. He's really fun. The movie was like kind of fine. Mm. It was a bummer. <laughs> like I was looking forward to it being amazing. And it was a solid like six out of ten. The look on Steven's face right now says that he's being very generous by saying six. And his, his face is saying three. It wasn't bad. I don't <laughs> regret seeing it. Okay. So, yeah. I like that the Steven scale of movies goes from kind of fine to like fucking awesome. <laughs> Where it's like fine is like a two and kind of fine maybe is a one. Next time I see a really shitty movie, I'll rail about it for two minutes. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, everyone. See you later. Thanks, everybody.